Blow is good, the hoe is good, the show is good, you know it's grub Cool as me out front, that can't cool, still can't fuck, you know it's love Clean as tight, even no head and shoulders, hoe, you know it's grub Shout out to my kinfolk, just got on that Coca-Cola scrub Watch my profile and my go-kart, this might get away as fuck In my hood, we call it book, fuck by what you think of me All my hoes be nice and dimes, all she want is chicken grease It is August 18th, 2016, and is the second episode of Psychology is dead. I'm your host Quentin Moody and this episode is titled The Art of the Tournament and we'll be going over, go, going over a lot of things you know wrestling tournament related psychology wise and you know all the things that of course we're going to do and the guest that I have for me this week is um the Sheedy award winning um, pundit who's regularly on the Place to Be Nation feed um, wrestling Awards staff member, and maybe the most controversial man on Twitter, Dylan Hales. Dylan, how are you? <laughs> it's me or Frey. I'm, do- I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, man. Wrestling tournaments is like uh, kind of my bread and butter these days for uh, maybe obvious reasons for some reason, uh, for some listeners, and maybe not so obvious reasons for other listeners. Uh, uh, the obvious reason being that I am like the world's foremost and most... Uh, outlandish, over-the-top uh, shill for the Scenic City Invitational, which, of course, is probably what we're going to talk about in bulk on this show, or at least for the majority of it, I would guess. Yeah. Well, like, the thing about, you know, your role in, like, the Scenic City stuff is, like, last year you were, you know, the main pimper of it. Like, in this, you know, inaugural event, you were the main guy, you know, pushing the Scenic City concept of how it was so cool that, you know, a Southern indie of all places was doing, you know, a tournament concept like this, that they were bringing in talent under one roof. Like, you're one of the main guys pushing, um, you know, the fact that this was a really cool thing that was happening. So um, could you explain why the Scenic City meant so much to you and why you felt like um, a need to um, push it so hard? Sure. So, I mean, you know, if people are listening to this and they're not familiar with the Scene City Invitational, it's a tournament that takes place every year. It's happened twice now, so it's not like every year means 10 years, but still it's, you know, happened twice. It's a two-night event, uh, single elimination, 16-man field tournament um, that is done in the greater Chattanooga area. Last year was in Rossville, Georgia, which is just across the state line, The actually the hometown of Terry Bam Bam Gordy, I might add. Uh, and uh, this year it was in Ulawa, which is kind of uh, on the other side of town, sort of, also a suburb of the greater Chattanooga area. Um, it's worth noting, I, even though I've lived virtually my entire life in Charleston, I was born in Chattanooga, and I've spent a ton of ch- time in Chattanooga over uh, the years because my family moved back after I graduated from high school, and my grandparents and aunts and uncles lived there all throughout my childhood, so I spent summers there, Christmas time there, sometimes spring breaks there. So really, I kind of have two hometowns. I have Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I live now and have lived most of my life, as I said, and I have Chattanooga, which is the place of my birth and kind of where my family's roots on both sides, my mother and father, uh, are. So to me... Like the immediate impact last year when I found out this was happening, which I found out via Twitter actually, when I saw that Congo Kong had retweeted that he was going to be in this tournament in Chattanooga, I didn't even know. You know, at the time I, I was not talking or, or friendly with um, uh, promoter Scott Hensley uh, and promoter Ace Rockwell. Now I'm, you know, buddies with both of those guys. But I found out kind of the way other people found out, and I thought, oh my God, Chattanooga's do- somebody in Chattanooga is doing something that's really neat. 
Um, I'd always been a fan of the tournament, you know, the idea of like the independent wrestling tournament, whether it was the Tepity Invitational or Best of the Best or, or whatever, that's always sort of something that I thought was a cool novel concept that actually, oddly enough, up until this year with the Cruiserweight Classic and other things, sort of distinguished the independent scene a little bit from the major wrestling companies because the major wrestling companies, they weren't able to do it as effectively or when they did do it, something would go off the rails, like that weird World Series thing that TNA did, tried mm. at various points. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, it just, to me, I think just in general, I like the idea of an independent tournament, but I especially like the idea of one in my hometown, not just because it's one of my two places that's kind of the Dylan Hale's origin story, but also because independent wrestling in the South that I fell in love with was primarily based in that North Georgia, East Tennessee corridor. Um, and my favorite independent group at the time, or if not my top one, one of my top ones was Empire Wrestling Entertainment, who was the host of last year's event and coordinated with this year's event as well. So it was like the perfect storm. It was regional guys that I liked, a tournament that I liked, a promotion um, that I liked that was involved with it in my hometown or one of my hometowns. So everything sort of came together in the in the perfect setting there in Chattanooga. And, um, you know, I I feel like last year, you know, the event did well. And, um, you know, I think pretty much the consensus was that it was good last year. You know, I you could you can find review uh, like one review I know of that was kind of negative, uh, but generally speaking, every review I saw last of last year's event was that it was a good event with a, a couple of really good, if not great, matches and a solid sort of top to bottom affair. Nothing that was awful, just like a solid couple of shows. I probably liked it more than most people because, again, I admit that I kind of have a bias. I enjoy seeing guys like KT Hamill and Jason Collins and a lot of the regional guys get to mix it up with some of the bigger names. Um, but this year, having the ability to build off some of the things they established last year, and this is really where we're going to get into the thick of things in this tournament, um, you know, or this year, or the show rather, is this tournament, both the last year and this year, was booked as an event, as an event, as an event that had a, uh, you know, a beginning, middle, and end, and characters that were playing specific roles within the context of the tournament. And for, in the 2015 thing, uh, uh, tournament, the SCI, we saw things that would carry over and have impact in 2016. And this isn't just an instance of like reading narratives into things that aren't really there, which I'm not even sure that I think is a bad thing, I might add, but this is stuff, this is stuff that was explicitly done by design to reward fans that watched last year's show. Um, and you know, if you think that's something that's going to go over the top of people or whatever, I'll just note that, you know, you know, we'll get into this more later, but I'll just note that at the event itself this year, there were fans, uh, near and around me at various points, including fans that I did not know that were not out of town traveling fans who remembered certain moments or spots that had occurred in last year and said, oh, my God, this is why he's doing this. So that sort of continuity and that um, the the idea of a tournament being booked as a broad event rather than the sort of grab bag approach that you see in a lot of other tournaments, I feel like really makes the SCI a super special event combined with the sort of regional authenticity that it has using so many of the top regional stars in the southeast and pitting them against bigger names from elsewhere. I think the main thing that on paper when I looked at this year's Scenic City compared to the 2015 one is that, you know, I wasn't as familiar with the Southern, Southern Indy scene in 2015. So, I was like, I knew Corey Hollis, 
I've seen Moose because he was in Ring of Honor. Congo Kong, he was a Midwest guy. Jimmy Rave obviously had, you know, uh, previous life in Ring of Honor and other companies. You know, Gunner was in TNA. Well, the regular Gunner, not Gunner Miller. Um, so a lot of these guys that we didn't see in 2016, so like an Ace Rockwell, a KT Hamill, uh, Mark Vandy, a Jason Collins, uh, Caprice Coleman, or a Christian Jam Haim, like we didn't get those guys, um, in 2016. And it's not a slight to those guys. Like when I'm saying this, but it felt like a completely different um, tournament, and that it felt, um, I guess, much bigger than it felt la- um, than it felt last year. Yeah, I think that there's, I think that's true, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think part of the reason is just the talent being. I mean, when you have Chris Hero, Matt Riddle, and Leo Rush, you have three people that are legitimate independent wrestling names. You know what I mean? Like guys who are wrestling for big time companies all over the world. Um, Riddle, I guess, has not yet taken a date out of the country, but he has, I think, you know, one coming up for Preston City soon, and he's a UFC star, so he's fought outside of the country. I mean, these are, you have three international guys, like stars, legitimate stars, on top of the regional acts, and, you know, also the fact that some of the regional names, like a Chip Day and Anthony Henry, for example, have broken out much more in terms of visibility in the year that has passed. Yeah. I mean, they're much bigger names. Not that they're huge, huge, well-known superstars, but they're compared to where they were last year, it's not even close, at least in my mind. And um, so I think, the, in general, yes, I agree with you that the profile was bigger. I, I would also note that the VOD being out there, being so, like I said, everybody seemed to consensus was that was good, if not very good, or even great shows last year, um, really helped this year, I think, because people knew, all right, look, it's fairly priced, because uh, Al Getz over at Wrestling has done a very good job, both with the production and in pricing the events super fairly. If anything, you could argue he's underpriced them. And uh, it's fairly priced. It's you know it's relatively easy to digest. You're not going to see a bunch of um, you know irrelevant stuff because all the matches, like I mentioned, that continuity factor, things are sort of deliberately tied together. Finishes are important for one reason or another. I just think it was there was a reason to watch the total event and appreciate the total event, and you could see that it was a good event. So I feel like the combination of the names. See, with seeing that it was a bit, seeing that it was a product that was worth viewing because last year people did buy the VOD and saw that it wasn't just some shit show or whatever. I think those two factors greatly enhanced things. One thing I do want to mention about the guys that weren't there um, this year that were last year, I think they did a very good job, the, the creative team, in sort of putting together the idea like, look, and I know this from talking to the guys, and this is something that I, I you know, because I am friendly with them, and I'm not going to talk about everything I discussed with them on the air. But one thing I will say is there was a conscious effort. They only wanted six people to return. They wanted a, uh, a majority of new people in the tournament, if that makes sense. Right. They wanted six returnees. And they stuck to their guns on that. I think they picked the right six guys to return. And what you got is a, a compelling field that was a mix of Guys who had some carryover story from the previous year, which was really critical to the tournament, but also guys that had their own sort of stories that could easily be interwoven into the context of the tournament, either because they are up and comers, they're top rookies in wrestling, or they're independent legends in the case of Chris Hero. So I thought it was uh, like, in many ways, I said this before the tournament happened, and you know, people can accuse me of just being a hype man. And look, I am a hype man, but I also believe in the product. That's why I'm a hype man. 
And, you know, I said before the tournament happened, I thought there was zero chance that the shows wouldn't be great with the, with the field they had. Like, basically, you would have to have had, like, every possible thing go wrong for the shows to be less than great, in my opinion. And I feel like the shows delivered as great. I think pretty much everybody who's seen this tournament compared to last year agrees that this tournament was is pretty clearly better than last year's tournament, in part because they were able to build on what they established last year. The six, the six guys that you mentioned in 2015 that were returned for 2016 are Corey Hollis, Joey Lynch, Gunnar Miller, Chip Day, Jimmy Rave, and Anthony Henry. And all those people were obviously important in this year's tournament, but, you know, certain people, I think, were, you know, I guess like came out as bigger stars. Like, for instance, Anthony Henry, he lost in the first round to Jimmy Rave in last year's tournament. And it was a fantastic match. And that was the match that got most people talking coming out of Phoenix City 2015. So even if Henry lost in that first round last year, he did come in as a favorite for a lot of people that were just like casual fans coming into this event. Anthony Henry was seen as a favorite by a lot of people. I mean, Gunnar Miller was, he's like the up and comer. I mean, you've taught, you've told me some stuff about him. I still need to seek out more of him. But he's the local um, local guy. Um, good luck, everything about that. Chip Day, he, obviously he's a guy that broke out in 2015 and still is in 2016. You still have Jimmy Rave, who had a career resurgence in 2015 in a lot of ways. And then Corey Hollis and Joey Lynch. And even though Hollis is still, you know, making appearances in NXT, he wasn't really pushed as the top star in the tournament and Joey Lynch, he's a guy that I think, even though he had a good match with Hollis last year, this year I think he left an even bigger mark. Oh yeah, I think you know, it, you, we, there are many ways you could look at like who the MVP of the tournament was, like, um, and I think many people would say that Anthony Henry was the MVP of the tournament. Maybe even the majority of people would say that Anthony Henry was the MVP. And I would find that impossible to really argue against. Um, I think he's the guy whose star shone brightest relative to what it was coming in to the newcomers. And I think his impact on the tournament, both in making it to the finals, the quality of his matches, the diversity of opponents that he faced, and the way he was able to play off certain elements of last year versus Jimmy Rave, um, I feel like that was huge uh, for him. But Joey Lynch, I feel, is probably the guy who benefited the most from this turn. I mean, yeah. um, you know, he, he's, he's already got his first booking in PWX off of it. I, have, I don't want to go into details, but I know he's gotten bookings and other bigger-name independent promotions lined up or about to be lined up as a result of the tournament. Um, and he's a guy, and this is by no means a knock on his first round opponent, Ray Fury, who I'm a big fan of, and in fact lobbied to be in the tournament. I, I you know, I wanted him to be in it, but uh, you know, he wrestled a relatively um, un- uh, unknown guy in the first round who probably was a little bit nervous wrestling on maybe the biggest stage he's ever wrestled on, and in the second round he wrestled a guy who would freely admit himself. Did not have a good night the first night. Had pretty much the only match in, the, in either night that I would call bad, uh, which was Gunnar Miller. Uh, in the, the first round match was not good versus Michael Judas. And Joey and him went out. These are two guys that in, were effectively the top two babyfaces in Empire 
Um, they've never worked against each other, but they've worked, you know, around each other and stuff. They went out there and had as good a sub-10-minute match, both in terms of story, big spots, whatever sort of standard you want to apply to it, that you will see in 2016, in my view. And I, I think, you know, there was a sort of meta-psychology that had sort of sprung up around Gunnar Miller um, after night one with people that were there. Uh, in the building, the, the you know, the consensus, the overwhelming consensus was uh, among the hardcore fans who had traveled, which was a substantial portion of the fans at the event. I mean, Larry Goodman from GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com speculated as much as half the audience. I don't believe that. I think it may have been a third, but probably definitely at least a quarter. But most importantly, these were people that were all ringside. Um, you know, they're the ones that are going to be on the camera. They're the, probably the loudest people in the building. And there was an overwhelming consensus that Gunnar Miller could not win the tournament after night one. That his match with Michael Judas uh, reflected so poorly on him that he could not emerge from the tournament victorious. And this is a really weird thing to say. I, in no way am I saying it was a good thing that he had a bad match with Michael Judas. I, I'm not saying that. But in a very strange sort of meta-narrative way, meta-psychological way, it kind of did enhance the tournament when he went on to do what he was able to do, which was have a legitimately great opener on night two for Joey Lynch in a sub-10-minute match that was completely explosive and exciting, and then go on to the finals and eventually win, spoiler alert, as I say after I announce the finish, <laughs> um, where, where he was in there and looked credible against three of the best wrestlers, in my view, on the planet. You know, he's in there with Chris Hero, Anthony Henry, and Jimmy Ray. There's no room for error there. If you don't hold up against those guys, it's going to be obvious and you're going to be badly exposed. Badly exposed. And I'm not going to sit here and say I thought he was necessarily better than any or all of those guys, but he certainly looked like he was on their level. He looked like he belonged with those guys. And when he hits that big dive in that match, the timing of it, the way it's built to, the way it's established – he was at that moment. He became credible to everybody in that audience. Whether it was a you know a so-called smart fan who had traveled from Canada or Chicago or Texas or wherever, or somebody who you know was a casual fan that had bought a ticket through the school fundraiser and knew the name from when he played University of Tennessee Chattanooga. It didn't matter. He was made off of that, and I really feel like there was sort of an internal redemption story that was told. Uh, a guy who sort of earned his stripes, Chad Campbell over at Place to Be Nation wrote a really good article on this about Gunner and the tournament and how he was able to come through. And that's just one of the sort of narratives that that built a little bit off things that happened this year and even a kind of not so great match that happened uh, this year as well. So it's a, it was a fascinating thing to watch and feel in the building to see how he was able to come off and also to see how how strongly Joey was able to uh, put him over without losing credibility in defeat, which is something that is not easy to do in a match that goes less than seven minutes. You know, I mean, that's a, there's not a lot of margin for error there. And I feel like they delivered an absolutely great match within the context of knowing that they had to protect Joey some, who is in fact the current Empire champion, but they also needed to regain the trust of the fans so that Gunner could go into that final and look credible and then, of course, ultimately win. 
And with that, I mean, we're still going to talk about the Gunnar Miller story because there are some questions I have because, you know, obviously I didn't get the live experience. I didn't travel to, you know, see the tournament, sadly. So next year. Oh, I'll try my hardest <laughs> to. But, like, coming out of the show, all I got from, you know, my friends and fellow staff members that went was that, you know, Gunnar Miller redeemed himself and that what he accomplished on night two was incredible. And I don't know when I was watching it. And maybe there's just a testament to, you know, I'm not seeing, you know, whatever um, noticeable um, mishaps or botches are, you know, when you're there alive. But I thought when I was watching this that that match wasn't as bad as, you know, a lot of people made it sound. Uh, like, I don't know how to describe it. Like, outside of the first initial botch on the Snapmare, um... I don't feel like that match came off that bad. So when I was watching the final, it felt like, huh, so that was the redemption story. Like, I was kind of confused by it. Yeah, it's, it, it is definitely interesting how differently things can come off on tape. You know, I actually uh, talked to somebody else that night who said, I bet you this match is not going to look as bad on tape as it felt tonight in the building. And, you know, sure enough, as soon as it came out, because I, I still haven't watched the VOD. You know, and I was told flat out by somebody else, you know, the match was not good, but it was nowhere near as bad as I was anticipating based on what was told. But I think you also kind of have to think about what that match was on the rest of the card. I mean, the rest of that card on night one was at minimum good. I, like, I don't think there was a single thing on the rest of that card that you would call worse than good. And, you know, I mean, some people may not, you know, the, the Drew Delight Billy Buck match might be a little bit too slow for them. I loved it. I thought the finish was great. I, I, I thought that match was great. Yeah. I mean, like, to, to, to me, everything on the rest of that show ranged from good to great. Somewhere in that spectrum. M- m- most of it probably in the very good sort of spectrum, right? Where, whereas that one match stands out like a sore thumb, especially because... You know, to these out-of-town fans who make up a substantial portion of the crowd, they're looking around, they're seeing all these Gunnar Miller shirts. It kind of raises the anticipation level. Oh, what is this guy like? You know, we know what he looks like. We might have seen one or two matches here or there. We saw him last year. But there's not a huge catalog of Gunnar Miller that's readily available online. He's not like a Chip Day or an Anthony Henry where he's sort of exploded in visibility this year, even though he has worked more places. They're not the sort of places that, that make his tape as often. They're not as more uh, as, as places that are, um, you know, readily available on streaming services and, you know, platforms that are easily accessible. So... I, I feel like that was part of it too. Is the, in the context of that card on night one, that match especially stood out. Like if, if this was a regular show where like it was just a decent little show, you know, that might be things might have been different. But on that show in that building with the atmosphere that had been there, um, especially the atmosphere that had been so hot for something like Leo Rush versus Anthony Henry, which had happened just a couple matches prior, I feel like that, you know, probably impacted the way it felt in the building as much as anything else. Yeah, and I think another thing about it, like, again, on the VOD, I don't think it came off as bad, but it felt noticeable that it felt like that match in particular was longer than it actually was. And, you know, when there is a 19-minute Chris Hero versus Kyle Matthews match on the show, and the 12 minute match feels, you know, like, a, like it's the longest one. I think that one, I think that's pretty telling. But 
I guess what we should do now is get into um certain guys in the tournament, you know, their first round matches and I guess in the context of what um of the tournament as a whole, what their matches meant. And we'll start off with um Jimmy Rave versus John Skyler and this is interesting because they put Jimmy Rave, the, you know, winner of last year's SCI, the defending champ, in against John Skyler, who if excuse me, if you put him in against someone else, he would be a favorite to advance. So and they put this as the opener. So what did you think of this um in the context of what they presented it as? Well, I, I think on paper it was a really cool idea. Of course, we didn't know that John Skyler would lose the PWX title before the match, but the the sort of idea of the guy who'd been like the top dog in you know the Carolina independent scene versus the guy who's been the top dog in the Georgia independent scene over the last year, year and a half, I like the idea of that on paper. I think for those who are paying attention as hardcore fans, it kind of adds some gravity to it to know that these are sort of the top dudes in their respective areas. Um, to me, the most important thing about this match, you know, is the finish. Jimmy Rave wins with the small package. And this this did two things. First of all, it's a callback to last year, where he steals the win over Gunnar Miller um, in the second round, BS, you know, faking an injury, sucker shot, small packages, and wins. He's been, he's been, you know, developing this small package as a finish. Now, all over the place. Um, you know, one thing that I think is especially important to remember going forward, you know, if you're watching this show or following along or thinking about it or whatever, is Jimmy Ray never has a merchandise table. This is something that I that obviously was not captured on video on demand. He never has a merchandise table ever. He had a merch table at this show, and at the show, for the first time ever, he was selling his brand new Rave smallest package in wrestling shirt, and. Uh, I think that that is, you know, I know, I, <laughs> I, I don't want to break the fourth wall too much, but I know how Jimmy Rave works and operates well enough to know that I don't think that that was a mis- that was a accident uh, with thing with how things would go for later in the tournament, you know. And what ends up happening is because the small package was the finish in this first match, because he's marketing. You know, this T-shirt and hawking it, he's got Gabby Gilbert standing on his table screaming about it in between matches. You know, it, it tells people, look, this is a legitimate finish. So for the rest of the tournament, anytime there's a small package, people believe it is a legitimate finish. It's treated like a fucking Death Valley driver off the top rope. You know, like it's, it, it is as credible a finish as anything, um, on, in any match from this point forward. And obviously, with you know, on top of that, with the carryover from the previous year, with you know how he defeated Gunnar Miller in the second round of the inaugural SCI, it adds extra depth and meaning to what eventually happens in the final itself. So that's the big critical takeaway from that opening match. We already talked somewhat about Joey Lynch versus Ray Fury. So unless there's something that you need to get out of the way there, I don't think we need to talk about that much more. No, no, I just, I just think, think it's a great, great match that people should give a look. Yeah, that is a great match. I actually like that more than you, surprisingly. Yeah, I, the, I, my, the impression I get is that that's a match that the VOD audience seems to appreciate more than I did live. I thought it was really good live, but it didn't 
grabbed me quite the way it has some of the VOD um, viewers. And I'm actually really excited to go back and watch it on VOD because I'm a huge Joey Lynch fan. So, and actually a huge Ray Fury fan too. So I'm really excited to see it again. I guess after that is, it's a match that between two guys that I'll admit that I hadn't watched before. And that, you know, on paper, when I saw this guy's name, you know, I didn't know what exactly I was going to get from him. And it was Wild Billy Buck versus Drew Delight. So since you're, you know, have more, have way more knowledge on this, on these two guys than me, can you, um, walk me through exactly what this match was? Sure. What, what I would say about this is Wild Billy Buck is one of the great baby face, sort of traditional baby face storytellers to come out of the Cornelia, Georgia um, wrestling system, so to speak, which is, of course, Wild Side Anarchy and now Why We Wrestle. That's sort of how the lineage has gone there. Um, uh, you know, and I guess in ACW before that. But uh, so it's been, you know, he's. He's actually a South Carolina guy, but that's the system that he's come out of. Is that that you know Cornelia wrestling system, which is important because Cornelia, Georgia, is sort of the, was the epicenter of Southern independent wrestling for a decade. You know, I mean that's where everybody came through. Whether it was uh, AJ Styles or, or even now Anthony Henry, who originally got his run there, you can trace a whole line from all these guys practically. Uh, virtually anybody who's worth a damn. That's come out of that universe. Xavier Woods, Dash Wilder, you know, R Truth, whoever. That's where they, you know, first really got their experience. Um, so Billy comes up through that system. He's sort of a traditional babyface. It's a gimmick that some people might say is dated, but I think he plays it well. It's a wrestling cowboy gimmick. Uh, and Drew Delight is one of the top heels in some ways. I would say, especially if you count promos, the top heel. Uh, in the Chattanooga area wrestling scene, maybe ever. I mean, it's him or Sean Tempers as far as independent Chattanooga wrestling. I mean, those are the two best heels I've ever seen in that area. And I've been watching independent wrestling in that area for a lot of, over 15 years, probably bordering 20 years now. And, um, so you, you know, you have the, that, that sort of traditional southern heel versus the traditional southern face. And, you know, they worked a match. What I liked about this, and I think this sort of speaks to the psychology of the tournament was, is, this match was totally different than the first couple matches. It was not like it at all. And I'm not sure that there's any match in the first round that was like another match in the first round. I think they were all kind of different. Oh, very, and, I thought they were all very clearly different, actually. Yeah, like, and, and this one, this one was worked slower, but they did some, you know, spots that kind of got the fans off their feet a little bit. And I love the finish with the way they sort of established Billy Buck's super kick, the buck shot, as a big, you know, sort of kill shot, which would come into play in his match versus Anthony Henry, you know, which happens in the second round. So again, they're sort of setting the table for something that's going to come later. And, and, you know, I even liked how Drew Delight hit his own super kick, and, you know, Billy sort of worked through that to hit his own, you know, like, you know, no, 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 I'm the master of this, not you. That's sort of like a Southern staple that I think Southern independent groups do more effectively than other groups. You know, where the heel will do something and maybe it's effective, but the babyface is not going to allow himself to be upstage because he's the guy who does that right, if that yeah. makes sense. And I just thought that was really smart. I love the thing. That, that's one of my favorite finishes of the whole tournament. No, you know, I just really, I thought it was a really effective match. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with you. Like, right after this match, I was really interested in Billy Buck because I thought he was, you know, doing a great job, I guess, what you would call playing a traditional Southern babyface. And, I think he had like an infectious charisma about him that made him. I don't think this is going to result in Billy Buck, you know, becoming the next, you know, Southern Independent Breakout Star. But for people that are, you know, seeking stuff out, 
in trying to gain knowledge of the scene, Billy Buck is someone that I think a lot of guys came a lot of guys came away really impressed with after this. Yeah, he's he's very good. Like I mean, he's really a very good wrestler. And you know, I would have been just as happy to see Drew advance. You know, I've seen Drew have Drew Delight have really good matches with a litany of people. Um, you know, over the years, and he's got a match coming up with Kyle Matthews for Empire's Return Show that I really hope makes tape because that could be awesome. But I, this was just a a really strong traditional wrestling match. Not blow away, nothing that anybody's going to get four stars or anything like that, but perfect for its spot on the card. And that's another thing I want to speak at real quick, Clinton, is the spot on the card, like wrestling for the spot on the card I think is really important. There's nothing yeah. wrong with trying to steal the show and go out and have a great match. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if everybody does the same shit in every single match... When you get to those main events, when you get to the things that you're trying to establish, you know, you know the the groundwork that's being laid with the small package, with the super kick, with these sorts of things. If you spam everything to the end of time in the first five or six matches on the show, it really isn't as effective when it happens in the main event. I guess, like, I guess, like something I could say then is like, and this isn't like to really take a shot at them because they will, well, their tournament will wind up getting discussed later. But say like a PWG, if we're watching like the six. For the first like three matches on a PWG show, and we're all, and we've already seen what like six super kicks, and someone's finish on the show is a super kick. When we eventually get to them, it's like, well, shit, we already saw that a bunch of times already. So, with you know, I guess them not going all out and then letting certain guys you know get their moves over and not overdoing certain things, that was super beneficial to what would happen you know in the later stages of the tournament. Oh, I absolutely agree. You know, I think some of the most genius booking in this tournament was probably not even stuff that was necessarily laid out by the bookers themselves, but it was decisions the wrestlers made as far as when to do certain spots at certain times throughout the show. You know what I mean? Like, that, that I think, speaks to the creativity of the wrestlers as well. And I don't want to, you know... Look, I think H. Rockwell and Scott Hensley and Al Guess and everybody that's involved in the creative end of the tournament does an excellent job. But the wrestlers themselves are the guys that go out there and perform and put these matches together. And even if they have some degree of input, they've still got to execute and they've got to sort of feed off the crowd. And I think it's pretty clear at times during this tournament especially, there were times where guys were feeding off the crowd and sort of ad-libbing or alternating or changing their vision just enough to sort of fit the new context that was being laid on the ground. And I, I mean, to me, that's a real testament to the skills of these guys. And after that, I guess, I mean, this is, I guess, what you would call the main event of the first four matches on the show. And this would be Anthony Henry versus Leo Rush. And before you talk about this, I mean, coming out of this weekend, this was the match that everybody was going crazy for. This was the match that, I mean, people were saying was a match of the year level thing. And I, my my thoughts was that live, this is probably the best match a lot of people have seen all year, or will see all year, because it was, you know, very energetic and just very hard-hitting, very fast, and a lot of people were going crazy, you know, at the moment for it. But, I don't know, on tape, it was great, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel like it reached that level. But you did have some interesting thoughts on it, in terms of, like, what, say, like, Leo exactly had to go through before this um match even happened. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to, again, there's certain things I'm, I, I probably won't talk about on the show, but what I will say is I know for a fact that Leo did not get a ton of sleep in the days prior to this. And, you know, you would not have known that from watching this. It's also worth noting that Leo was booked for Dreamwave on night two, which is in Illinois. And not everybody knew that, but probably the vast majority of out-of-town people knew that he was not going to win this match. And I think this is a case where you have sort of another sort of meta-psychology to the thing, because even though we knew Leo could not possibly win this match, because he was booked elsewhere, we were still biting on the near falls. You know what I mean? Like, they did such an effective job of making us forget what we already knew that I think it enhanced the live experience even more, if that makes sense. Because like, I think that's part of the reason that a lot of the live people thought this was a match of the year, had this at like a match of the year level, was because of what they made us forget. They made us forget that Leo was booked, you know, two states away, three states away, whatever the hell it is, the, the next day. There's no way he's winning. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yet... It, it we didn't weren't thinking of that for those 15 16 minutes whatever it was that wasn't even on the table you know the the other thing that i think and, and again this is a guy who did that this high octane super fast completely unique totally distinct from anything on this show or really the tournament altogether this match he did this on very little sleep when he did not have to because he could have phoned it in let's be honest he's tired he's got a booking he's not working the second night I think it speaks really well for a guy this young to bust his ass that hard when he didn't have to, you know, because um, he really didn't. And it was a show stealer in many ways for a lot of people on night one. It was not my favorite match of night one, but I did have, I, you know, if you, you know, held a gun into my ribs and said, you know, what's your star rating? I'm not a huge star rating guy. I'd probably go four and a quarter on it, you know. Like, I, I thought it was a really great match for the style. Uh, one other thing that I think, was sort of established is you got the the Anthony Henry running kicks and the Anthony Henry spin kick, which laid out Jimmy Rave last year was a legitimate KO shot was sort of a critical thing that they built off of to establish the Jimmy Rave injury angle that would play into how he was able to steal the win from Gunnar Miller and then subsequently go on to win win the tournament in last year's event. They sort of played up the the power and impact of that spin kick at least in the building again this year as well. And, of course, they played up the violence of Anthony Henry's kicks in general, uh, which sort of built off what we saw last year versus Jimmy Rave with, with the, uh, the the murder kick, if you want to call it. I think that's what Dustin Spencer calls it, where you know he throws the guy down in the chair and does the run around and just absolutely kills these guys with these run and drop kicks to the face. That was kind of established here. Uh, one other thing that the camera doesn't quite catch, because I've seen the gif of this, even though I haven't seen the, uh, the VOD itself, is... When Leo does do that the dive combo, he does that first dive and then he does the second dive as a helo up top, the first dive, from the angle of a lot of people, it looked like Leo had spiked himself right on his head. Oh, like, yeah. It, it looked absolutely, like, on tape it looks uh, nutty, but in the building it looked absolutely murderous. And it had one of the, it had the vibe of, like, I always make this joke about Sasha Banks matches, but I, I don't mean it in a negative way because I'm a huge Sasha fan. It had that vibe of when Sasha, like, 
almost blows the spot, but not, not quite. And she takes like a crazy bump or like lands awkwardly. And then it feels like the match really kicks into a next year afterward. Right. And it kind of had a similar vibe to that in the building. So, um, this did a lot to raise the, the credibility of both of these guys in my eyes. Um, and I think it really did a lot to raise the credibility of Anthony Henry because not only, you know, he lost twice last year. He lost in the first round to Jimmy Rave, and then he lost a special match to Joey Lynch on night two. Well, now he's coming back, and here he is, and he's beating a legitimate independent name in round one in the show-stealing match. So it was the right match for him in the tournament as well. I guess, like, two things that I wanted to mention. Um, in the beginning, Anthony Henry, you know, just goes straight for Leo, um, kills him with a boot. And that would set up the second round match and how Anthony would try to start it off with Billy Buck. And I guess yeah. another thing is that you mentioned the near falls and how people were going crazy for them because, like, for the, for those moments in time, you kind of forget that Leo was supposed to be doing other things. I didn't, like, it, like, I don't know, maybe I was crazy, but it didn't feel like there was that many near falls. Like, it didn't feel like they went crazy with them either. They really didn't spam them. I guess... I, I guess Near falls probably isn't even the right term so much as it is momentum swings might be a better way of putting it. Like, yeah. when, when Leo had a flurry, you still believe that Leo could come out on top. You know what I mean? Like, they're, like you didn't think, oh, this is just a flurry for the sake of a flurry. And, that, you know, I'm not going to – we'll get to this when we get to it. But this was, I think, something that the main event lacked a little bit through no fault of either Chris Hero or Kyle Matthews. Um you legitimately believe that either one of these guys could win because of the way the match had built. And I think the pace it kept, especially because nothing else on the show was paced anything like this at all. I, I, I feel like, the, I mean, I guess you could say Lynch versus Fury had bursts that were kind of like this, but I don't think there was anything else on the show that was even close. I think that pace sort of added to the idea that anything could happen at any moment that could be a finish. It almost had a lucha feel. Yeah, I mean, you're a lucha fan. You know what I mean. Like, yeah. one of the great things about lucha is, and maybe my favorite thing about lucha libre as a style is, anything can be can end a fall. Anything, any move, if it, if it's executed the right time, the right way, anything can be a finish. And that's kind of how this match felt. And just a side note. Um, I've seen you compare Leo Rush to Amazing Red a lot, and I saw similarities, you know, early on when I first started getting exposure to Leo, but for some reason, I think this match is like when it clicked, where it's like, yeah, it did really feel like I was watching Amazing Red a lot of the time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like he's not as dynamic a flyer. In fact, in a way, Leo's not really a flyer. I mean, he has some big high-flying spots, but what he is is he's a speed guy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, he... His speed is his asset. Not his high spots necessarily, but the speed itself. And that's where I think that similarity with Red comes in, and that they're just so much faster than everybody else, it just jumps off the page at you. So, yeah, um, and I agree with you that this is probably one of the best examples of that Red-like speed jumping off of the page. Yeah, it was, like, really glaring in this match. And I guess after that, we got Chip Day versus Odinson. And... I like Chip Day a lot, and he's a guy that, you know, after last year's Scenic City, um, I, I, maybe exploded isn't the right word, but he definitely became one of the guys, along with Anthony Henry, that people that started following Southern Indie Wrestling, you know, took an immediate liking to. And he, so, of course, I'm looking forward to watching him. And then Odinson is a guy 
from WWE four, like they don't I mean they have a lot of, you know, high profile trainees that have come out of there. But, you know, Odinson is actually a really good, strong, athletic big guy. And he's like really underrated for how good he, I think he is for his role. And so for this match, um I like I felt like this was maybe the weakest day performance I've seen. And it, it's not even really his fault. But I'll let you go into it a bit more. Well, what, what I'll say is, um, I consider Chip a friend. I'll just be honest about it flat out. Like, we're not besties, but, I, you know, I, I, I do consider him a friend. Um, and I also consider him a legitimately great wrestler. Like, I know T- Timothy and uh, for, or Luke, the infamous Lucha Undead, and uh, my buddy Pete were kind of getting got a little dig in at me on uh, This Week in Wrestling. Uh, maybe it was this week or the last week. I can't remember which. Talking about my uh, penchant for hyperbole. I don't think I am being hyperbolic when I say Chip Day is an excellent wrestler. I really don't. I agree. Um, I agree so. I, I, like, I, I, I mean, you know... Is he one of the five best wrestlers on earth? No, and I don't think he'd tell you he was either. But he can hang with anybody. Uh, he really can. And what I think happened with Chip in this tournament, because I think he had good performances in both of his matches, um, but I think it was an interesting... Like, the best Chip day is Chip day where the Chip... where, where um, the character that he naturally is, I call him the Johnny Lawrence of professional uh, professional wrestling, the asshole bad guy Cobra Kai leader from Karate Kid. Like, that's basically who Chip Day is. And you can, like, he can be a babyface and be effective, as he was, I think, in this match with Odinson, but I think he's better either as a heel or as a Rob Van Damish type babyface, where, like, he's a cocky douchebag who still thinks he's better than everybody, but the fans like him, you know? Yeah. Like, I, to me, that's where Chip excels. And this match versus Odinson, he was working as a, almost a more of a traditional babyface role. And um, they it, came, it was right after intermission, and they came after the match that was by far the most <laughs> fast, for lack of a better way of putting it, <laughs> match on either show. And I just feel like I thought the match was good. You know, I thought it was a good match. But it was not a match that hit the next level, and I'm not sure it was supposed to. I think this might be a case where, you know, Chip was sort of put in a weird position. I don't know that he thought he was going to get the babyface reaction that he got. Um, he absolutely did get a babyface reaction from at least the vocal minority of fans that were on the fl- in the floor seats. And, you know, I think he, they kind of worked with the idea that Chip was the underdog babyface from that Four. And, you know, he it ended up being where Chip Day ended up being the guy who was going up against the Monsters because in the second round he wrestled Independent Godzilla, which is my nickname for Chris Hero, you know? And, that, and of course, that sort of narrative of what Chip was in the tournament that was established in the first match carried over to the second match because he played a very sort of similar role uh, in that match versus Chris Hero, you know? Um, uh, so... I don't think it's the most effective role for Chip. Having said that, I don't think it was a bad role for Chip. I think he looked good. I think if people are watching the tournament with the idea that they're going to see um, the best matches from any particular guy, I think that is kind of a faulty way to look at this tournament as a whole. Not because there weren't a bunch of good matches, because I think... You know, of the, I guess there was, what, 15 matches combined, counting the non-tournament matches between the two nights. I would say 
13 of the 15 were good or better. And, you know, one of them, like, half of it was good and the other half just kind of went on too long. Like, so, in terms of quality, this is a show that had two shows that have a hell of a lot of quality. But I think the thing was that Chip had a spot that he fit into in terms of the booking plans. He was effective in that spot, but it was not the spot that is necessarily going to yield the best shift day output, if that makes sense. Like, you're going to see, you, he, you're, he's always going to give you a good match, and I think that he did that, but it wasn't the chip day that the people, that people like myself or Frey or Papa Hills or whoever are talking about when we're talking about the chip day that we see um, on, on independent shows regularly. It was a sort of modified version of Chip that, you know, um, fit within whatever he was given on that given night. Which actually, in a sense, is a testament to him. Uh, it's, it's just, it's not, it's not his strongest role, in my opinion. Yeah, and like, again, like the way I said it, like, maybe comes off harsher than I actually intend, but by no means did I think Chip was bad, and I thought this was a good match. Is that from what I've been exposed to from Chip Day? I guess this wasn't the usual, and I shouldn't have been expecting that either. But and it did and it did fill his role fine. But I came away with this match being really impressed by Odinson, and I just feel like Odinson. I mean, outside of people again in this very very small bubble that are paying attention to stuff like this, that Odinson you know really doesn't get enough credit for. I guess how good he actually is at this point. He's really good. He's only a couple years in, you know, and um, I think he's a guy that will probably look. I, I he's a nice guy. I spoke with him a little bit at the event. Like he he was another guy, by the way, that was booked somewhere else on night two, um, and that kind of came out a little bit on Twitter in the days right before the event. But in his case, it was kind of interesting because. The show he was booked on was close enough where he could have theoretically double shot it. And that kind of made it where, like, even though I think everybody sort of knew he's not going to win, it, it allowed you to play along a little bit, if that makes sense, because it was close enough where nobody was like, okay, there's no chance. Um, but he he's going to be really, really great if somebody figures out how to use them right. You know what I mean? Like, if somebody puts them full bore in that monster role and just lets them go, go, you know, fully become what he has already, already has in him, he's going to be really, really great. Um, I've seen him have some great matches. I've seen him have some not so great matches. He's a wonderful base, which we really didn't get to see much versus Chip. But he's a guy definitely to keep your eye on. And I'm really happy he was included in the tournament. You know, he didn't have a match of the night, but he had a good match. And I think, uh, it's great to me that the takeaway was that you wanted to see more Odinson because you already want to see more chip day. You know what I mean? He's a guy that has some buzz about, you know, in fact, as we record this, you know, you're going to be going to, uh, an evolve event tomorrow, which I believe chip has a tryout. So he's, He's almost there as it is. It, you know, Odinson is the guy that really needed to benefit. And by the way, I think it says something about a tournament if the guys who lose benefit as well. You know, if, if you if you if your guys who take the fall lose, you've done you've done uh, you know, and, and they and they uh, benefit in some way. They come out looking as strong or stronger than they did going in. To me, that's what that is. You know, indicative of good booking and good performance. 
yeah, and that's a strength of, I guess, like what the SEI has accomplished is, I mean, obviously for known guys like a John Schuyler or a Corey Hollis that lost their first round matches, you know, they're not losing anything. But say for a Ray Fury, a Drew Delight, or an Odinson to go out there and have those good matches and impress people the way they did, I think just speaks, you know, really well to them. And I'm just hoping that, you know, as more Scenic City Invitationals roll around, that we get to see those guys more because I think they did not maybe like, not earn like a, you know, um, annual spot in the tournament, but I think they did enough that people should probably start paying attention to them and maybe start putting them, you know, in the regards of the guys that broke out last year. Um, and we already talked about Gunnar Miller versus, um, Mikhail Judas. Um, I guess the only thing that I have to say about this match is, um, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but it felt like Judas, like, again, holding Gunnar Miller's hand sounds way, way harsher than I actually intended. But it felt like Judas was like very clearly leading the match. And for it to have come off as bad as it did to the live crowd, um, would you say that that would have hurt Judas's stock um, for a lot of those people in, in attendance? Yeah, I mean, Judas, I, I, the general takeaway in the building was that Gunner didn't have a good performance. That it was it was a bad performance from Gunner. You know, I'll just be honest. Um, that was the general takeaway. And that Judas looked terrible. You know, and, and I actually think Judas is pretty good, and I like Gunner a lot. You know, so, like, it, it, it's not like I'm shitting on these guys. This was the general takeaway in the building. And I will add, it was not lost on both of these men that they did not have the best night. You know what I mean? Like, this was not like a case where, you know, like a Chris Jericho type situation where he's like chastising people for having incorrect wrestling opinions afterward and telling you how great the match actually was. <laughs> this was, there was an understanding pretty much across the board that it was not to the standard of what was on the rest of the show, to put it mildly. And, um, you know, it sort of created that meta-psychology, meta-narrative that I talked about earlier. And, uh, you know, to me personally, I thought Judas looked worse. I mean, my biggest criticism of the match live was not even the botched spot or two that happened. Uh, and the funny thing is there was some crazy stuff in this match. I mean, Gunnar Miller takes a butterfly suplex into the turnbuckle, which is a, like an awesome spot that I've never seen. Yeah. But it was completely lost in the sort of not well built and like the big to me the hardest thing if you're going to work on a show if you're working on a show with guys like Chris Hero and of course of course he hadn't worked yet but still like a Chip Day or Anthony Henry you cannot work as light as Michael Judas worked you know what I mean like you have to work like it, it just you know especially when you're wrestling a guy who's a big dude who's supposed to be strong and powerful because it makes it look even more ridiculous that he's selling for something when we just saw Chip Day and Oates and stiff each other. <laughs> it, 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 it just was a hard sell coming after that match, you know. Like I, and I, look, it wasn't good. Uh, it was the one thing in the tournament that you know, on most shows, that I think it's very hard to find any positive in it, other than the fact that it sort of created this weird narrative of redemption for Gunnar Miller um, on night two, you know. So. Uh, but uh, it wasn't. It, it was not a highlight for either guy. And 
after that match, we got Matt Riddle versus Corey Hollis. And I thought this match was really interesting. And this is actually my favorite match of the night. I know it was your favorite match of the night, too. But I guess what I thought was interesting about this is Hollis coming in and not really, you know, comedy seems too strong. But, you know, he was really, you know, digging into, you know, being on, you know, NAC TV, you know, being announced from Full Sail and all that stuff. And Matt Riddle was, like, clearly the babyface. Like, very clearly was the guy that fans were going to get behind. And, you know, it just so happens that that he's a very likable guy. But in this tournament in general, Matt Riddle was like presented as a like very clear white meat baby face and you know if you're watching him in evolve he's not really that he's kind of a prick so to see him in this setting where he's just like kind of a clean guy you know um i thought it was really interesting yeah riddle was the biggest star of the tournament basically from the moment he walked in the room on friday night probably even before he he uh made his way to uh, uh, the ring for his match. I mean, it was really a sight to behold. You know, he, he did the, you know, uh, uh, he, he, you may have heard the, the Q&A session that he did with uh, the Fans of Wrestling podcast um, that came, you know, after the Somehow We Met the Live, Somehow We Managed. You know, parts of those are out already on the Internet. Some of them is not. Um, uh, but even on Friday when he got there, there was like a much smaller group of us in the conference room and Patrick Alvarez from Fans of Wrestling was recording a podcast and he just walked straight in without gets. He walked straight over, got straight on the microphone, cut a promo on Corey Hollis and like exited to bro chance. And there, yeah, it was like six people in a room, but this guy, like, it's just unbelievable. And he's the most likable, naturally gifted person. I've, I mean, I said this, um, you know, it's like, I'm not saying this to brag because I think I'm hot shit because these guys, like, were interacting with everybody all weekend as part of what made SCI so special. But, um, you know, I was able to sit down and have dinner with Matt and Chris Hero on, uh, actually, after this show on Friday night. And, like, in talking to him, and in no way am I calling him an idiot because I don't want him to beat my ass, but in talking to those two guys together, Riddle is like, Chris Hero is like a wrestling intellectual. You know, like, he knows all the stuff. He knows everything. Like, he could tell you what his favorite John Cortez match is. You know, like, this guy, he's basically one of us, right? Yeah. Like, Matt Riddle, it's not so much that he's not one of us, because he is interested in it. He's got his favorites, and he loves to talk about wrestling. But this guy's a fucking savant, man. Like, he just he just has an intuitive capability for understanding and, you know, and for getting over. Like... He walked in that building. It wasn't just that he was over with the, you know, 50 to, well, probably more like 75 smart fans on, on night one. Maybe a little bit, you know, north of that. Actually, probably definitely north of that on night two. But he, he got over with everybody. There was like little kids chanting bro and coming up to him and high-fiving him and stuff after the match. Like, he, he just instantaneously had it. And I think Corey, to his credit, sort of went with that. And played that sort of southern stooging type of heel, you know, which was a role that nobody on the show had really played. To a degree, Drew Delight had kind of brushed up against it a little bit in the match with Billy Buck, I think. But Corey took it to a next, took it to the next level. And, you know, this match got over Riddle's finish. It got over the idea 
uh, of Riddle as a guy that could deliver a great match, um, you know, on top of being super charismatic. Um, I just thought it was really, really great. I mean, this was my match tonight once. Another one I probably have about four and a quarter. It was not quite match of the year level to me or anything like that. And, and actually, it's probably only like the eighth or ninth best Riddle match I've seen this year. You know, he's had so many good ones. But it was a really good match, like a great match. And it exceeded my expectations. I mean, I figured it would be good. I didn't think it would be that good. And they, they, it included elements of everything. It had a little bit of comedy. It had a little bit of hard-hitting stuff. And Riddle even did something that... This is, I think, actually something that's really critical that you know maybe was kind of lost. Um, Riddle doing that swanton bomb, I mean, that's not... A, I don't think he's ever done it in all. He's done it on some monster... Factory shows. I don't, I don't know, know if he's ever done that. Beyond. Like, um, wow. I, hold on. I'm trying to think if he's actually done that in Evolve. I don't I think, think he has. has. You know, like, like I, know I know he's, he's done, done it on, on some, some Monster Factory shows. shows. Um, but, but him doing that, like, I think, especially for the fans who didn't know him, the more casual audience that was there, that not only did it say, oh, this is a guy who can do crazy sort of high spot stuff too, and people were excited to see somebody who could do that. But, but I, I also, also think, think it sort of showed this This isn't just a wrestling dude. This isn't just a guy who's going to grapple or hit you hard or whatever. He has, like, a complete game. And it added the idea, like, not only was he the most over guy, I think the impression, and in fact, I heard this kind of scuttlebutt from casual fans as I was leaving the building that night, was that Riddle was, like, the most well-rounded wrestler there. You know, and this wasn't, like, people from the Wrestling with Word staff or... You know, or Chad Campbell from PTP. This was like regular, like wrestling fan type people that were just there. We're talking about how Riddle was, you know, came across out of night one looking like the most well rounded guy there. And to me, that's kind of interesting. And I think it sort of speaks to the sort of match that he had with Corey. Yeah. And I don't know, in some ways, that felt like the main event to me but not really because whenever we get well, when we get to the main event now I mean not even talking about the match itself when this match got announced it felt big like it felt like you know Chris Hero the god of indie wrestling versus you know Kyle Matthews I mean you can correct me if I'm you know off base on this but the way I've heard him is like you know kind of like the ace of southern wrestling in a way yeah, uh, Kyle is Kyle Matthews, and look, I don't know. I, he's a guy who I would love to see get booked off this tournament. I don't know if it will happen. I don't even know how much Kyle wants to travel. You know, he's got a family now, and, and that's great, by the way. If that's that should be his priority if that's you know what he wants in, in his life. Um, but he's as good as anybody. I mean, this is a guy that was in my GWE list for the PWO Greatest Wrestler Ever. He was like my number one hundred or whatever because. In the YouTube era, I think he's the most consistent guy I've ever seen. Like, he never has bad matches ever. It doesn't matter how podunk the indie is. It doesn't matter how bad the wrestler is. It doesn't matter whether he's babyface or heel. He just always has good matches every time out, you know. And um, what I liked is there was sort of like a, a, a subtext narrative here because Kyle 
had had gotten close to being a big star in independent wrestling, and then it just never quite got there. He'd worked some days with Chikara and Dragon Gate, worked some other cars with Ring of Honor. Kind of similar to the situation Corey Hollis has been in at times, where he flirts with making getting that break and just never quite gets it for one reason or another. Um, Kyle had been that guy for a long, long time, and he'd even wrestled Danielson on Danielson's... Uh, that during that stint when he was in between WWE stints, uh, after the infamous uh, Justin Roberts tie choking spot, uh, the the initial Nexus angle, you know he got into work and they had a great you know portion of a match because they had that they were involved in a four way match in uh, Rampage Pro. So this was like his second chance, kind of of getting to wrestle that guy who a lot of people think is the best independent wrestler ever. You know, this time it's not Brian Danielson, it's Chris Hero, but still it's sort of the same type thing, and. I love the opening mat work here. I thought it was really cool. It was like watching two maestros. And it was, again, totally different than anything else on the show. Nobody had done anything like that on the show, um, which I which I loved. Um, you know, Hero, the way Hero healed on him off of the, uh, the rope running stuff was kind of comedic, but not in a way that took away the gravity of the match itself and the significance of the match itself. And, you know, what I really liked about this match is that they teased a time limit draw, but without doing the hokey three, two, one, yeah. you know, the sort of outdated, like, obvious this is going to be a last second roll up or whatever. They did time cue calls, I guess, like every five minutes or whatever, and then, like, I think they did one at 18 minutes, and they might have done one at 30 seconds. I'm trying to remember. But the point is, they weren't hammering you over the head with, okay, we know what's going to happen. You knew the time limit was a threat to knock both the guys out of the tournament, which I thought was really cool. But you didn't know exactly when that moment would come, which kind of had you out on the edge of your seat even more. Now, my criticism of this match is not a criticism of the work of either guy. My criticism of this match is, as the match went on, even though I think that there were a lot of people who sort of looked at this as kind of one of the more difficult matches to pick in round one, um, it became really hard for me to envision anything that Kyle Matthews could do that would beat Chris Hero. Yeah. Like, like I couldn't think of what spot he could do. I mean, this is a guy whose normal finish is a running drop kick and a small package combo. And while the slippery kick looks awesome when he hits it square and, like, it's totally believable against the average guy, it's not really believable against Chris Hero. It's just not – to me, that's not a believable finish against him in the way he's presented. And while some might say, well, that kind of is cool because then the story becomes how is Kyle going to be able to beat him, to me, as – you know, the story became almost – is this going to go to a draw or not? Yeah, you know that's I mean? like, like yeah, that's the main thing I took away from it. Like, not whether or not, and you know, that's the weird thing because you know, I've praised the Chris Hero, I guess what would be called the bully formula, where if you're in yeah, the yeah. Chris Hero bully formula, there's like no way that the match is going to be you know less than good, and it gets guys over no matter who it is, whether it be Trent or Fred Yehi or Mark Andrews or JoJo Bravo. If you're in, you know, the ring with Chris Hero when he's bullying you around, it's going to be good. But there has to be that kind of sense that you have something that could get Hero down. And, you know, I think Kyle is as good as a lot of those guys that I just named. But, you know, even Mark Andrews, at like at certain points when he faced Chris Hero, 
felt like he had something believable that could keep Hero down. At no point did I ever get that from Kyle Matthews, and that was just a weird thing. Like, it felt like... Like, it kind of felt like I was waiting for the draw, and not for someone to actually win. Yeah, yeah and... and in, in that, that sense, sense, I would I actually say, say that the... Re- that, that, the, the fact that they, they went, went almost, almost 20, the full 20 minutes, minutes to the draw actually was especially smart, even if it wasn't by design. You know what I mean? Like, even if that wasn't the intention for why they were giving it so much time, the fact that, you know, Kyle didn't have that credible kill shot. Now, don't get me wrong. They could have pulled something out of their ass, and it probably would have worked, because both of those guys are so damn good. Like, seriously, in my opinion, Chris Hero and Kyle Matthews are two of the hundred best wrestlers ever. This is not a criticism of either one of them. It's just the nature of the beast is Kyle did not have an obvious kill shot. It, it, it was the, to me, it was the difference between like a match that I thought was like right at the great level and a match that I thought was like blow away great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I still thought it was a great main event, like you know, probably like three and three quarter star, four star match, but it wasn't quite at the level of, like, a holy shit, I can't believe what I just saw type of thing, which is not a knock on either guy. I thought it was super effective and, and, a, and a very fitting main event for the show. It's just Chris here, and, and in a way, in a way it kind of worked, too, because one other thing's worth noting is Chris Hero, you know, we know about the kicks, we know about the elbows, and we also know about the pile drivers. Well, we saw the first pile driver here. He did the, you know, the sort of snap pile driver that he does against Kyle. Well, throughout the rest of this tournament, we got two other completely different Chris Hero pile driver variations that would play in a critical moment. So I kind of like that too because it sort of sets the table for what's coming with the, uh, with the, the pile driver stuff in the subsequent rounds. And that would wrap up the first round action and, you know, there was no, I guess, what I would call bad matches besides um, Judas versus Miller. But again, that's a, like a tremendous card. And when we get to round two, I think they somehow managed to tie it together even more with just with just nothing feeling like it dragged on or didn't belong. And that's just a testament to, again, the match placement. And we already talked about um, Gunnar Miller versus Joey Lynch and what they did there and having a fantastic sprint. And I'm looking at it right now. They only went six minutes, which is, like, insane to me. So, like... Yeah, it's it's crazy how much they were able to do in six minutes without hurting Joey. Like, you know what I mean? Joey came out looking stronger than he did going in just for surviving. So did Gunnar Miller in a six-minute match. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's completely insane, like, how... A guy was... Like, one guy was able to completely redeem himself, and the other guy looked completely credible... These are two baby faces. You know, it's just, it's nuts that they were able to do what they were able to do at that time. Like, I said this to somebody else a couple days ago. Like, I'm not saying this is a five star match, okay? But, if you define five star matches by matches that, like, succeed 100% of what their goal was, then this is a five star match. Like, they, they, they simultaneously were able to protect Joey. Build intrigue for a future Gunnar Miller versus Joey Lynch match for the Empire title, I might add, because we've now right. seen that. Protect Joey, build intrigue for a match but down the line, perhaps, between these two. Reestablish Gunnar as a completely credible killer without hurting Joey at all, 
And they did it all in a short way. They gave Gunner an edge instead of making him look like a guy that was maybe too happy-go-lucky. You know, like, they did everything they needed to do in, like, six and a half minutes. And I, as an opener on – in a situation where a lot of the crowd coming into that match, because the, the hardcore fans had really taken to Joey Lynch after his match with Ray Fury in round one – and they had not taken to Gunnar Miller, to be perfectly honest, with the exception of me and my dad, you know, um, and a few others. They not really taken to him, and they were able to win over a lot of those people, like just immediately with six minutes. So that's that's a huge testament to me. I, I think that speaks very well to the way the match was laid out, the way it was booked, the execution, um, and the effort of those guys. Yeah, like you may not, you may or may not agree with this comparison, but like the way you like laid it out because like I viewed like the Trevor Lee Roy Wilkins match as maybe the most impressive feat in wrestling this year and for 105 minutes I think there would there was like nothing that could top it for what it accomplished and what it was or what it was attempting to accomplish in this six minute match I think it was not it was like maybe like just a little bit less effective but Still, for as much as they were able to accomplish with both guys, is just you know wild to me. And it was it is something that I'll like point back to as like one of the more impressive things in wrestling this year, even for a six minute match. Yeah, I completely agree. And one other thing, and this was noted by somebody um, to me today. Um, well, fuck it, I'll just say who noted it to me. TJ Hawk noted it to me uh, that you know it also is kind of cool that if you look at what happened. You know, and this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think this is kind of worth noting now. Gunner had a six-minute match here, six, six and a half, whatever it was, six-minute match here. Well, Chris Hero had worked almost the time limit the night before and goes like 14 minutes or whatever with Chip Day coming up. Um, Jimmy Rave had gone almost to the time limit with Matt Riddle. You know, Anthony Henry had had 15-plus minutes versus Billy Buck here. The only guy, you know, the guy who eventually ends up winning, Gunner Miller, Got a little. I mean, it's not that he had an easier run, but he had less ring time. He was like, it's internally consistent. This is a guy who was able to, you know, he went in there. He wanted to finish Joey early. He speared him out of his boots right away. And you can sort of draw a line with kayfabe logic that he would be fresher going into the final than everybody else. And I think that's kind of an interesting point that you know, well, I don't even know if that was intention, by the way, but it wouldn't shock me if it was. But it's just an interesting sort of thing to think about because Gunner being able to finish off Joey early, you know, you can sort of look at it from a kayfabe perspective and say, okay, obviously he's going to be fresher for the, for the final than the, these other guys are. So it's kind of a cool like add on um, that makes the fact that the match only went six or seven minutes even more significant. Another thing that you said there that, you know, just you know made me think of this is that, um, I felt like Gunner, you know, Anthony Henry attempted it with Billy Buck, but Gunner was the only guy that I felt like worked with like urgency here. Like, yes. Yeah, like, you know, if you look at the other matches, and then, like I said, Anthony Henry attempted to do the same thing to Billy Buck that he tried to do to Leo Rush, and which was, you know, get a big boot on him, you know, right, at, right as the bell rings. But Gunner Miller was the only guy that felt like he was working with a sense of urgency. I need to get this done. I need to do something. I need to do this now. So... Yeah, from that standpoint, they they man they accomplished so much in this match that I just hope a lot like more people pick up pick up on because 
this helped this helped them both guys a lot. Um, and I guess after that's Anthony Henry versus Billy Buck, and I thought this may, maybe overdelivered is a strong word, but considering what else is on the show, as in like a Chris Hero versus Chip Day, and a Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle, like I don't think this match is like you know that far behind either of these, like. I think, like, it's, like, the Anthony Henry-Billy Buck match is, like, maybe, like, a little bit below the Jimmy Ray-Riddle match. And this felt different than anything else on the show, too, because it almost felt like it had more of a brawly feel to it. Yeah, I thought it had a brawly feel. Like, I also think, like, the fact that the crowd was kind of split actually helped this match in a weird way, because both guys seemed to kind of play off of it a little bit. Um, the, the, the Anthony Henry chair spot, you know where he sits the guy in the chair and does the drop kick that had been established in the first match. They played off of that here, and it led to Billy Buck hitting the super kick on the floor, which was also established in his first match. So you kind of had, like, both of those sort of kill shots came into play all at once. And these are guys, two guys who've worked each other a ton over the years. They know each other very well, and I think you could tell. Like, I saw one review that, you know, gave this match, like... uh, it was like two and a quarter stars, and I mean, this is not a knock on the reviewer because the reviewer in question is a, is a friend of mine and somebody whose opinion I really respect. But and I haven't watched back the VOD as well to be fair. But my impression of this was that this did over deliver, at least from the perspective of if you looked at this match on paper coming in, nobody's going to say this is a dream match the way some people might say Chip versus Hero and Ray versus Riddle were. No, yeah. and even, and even Gunner versus Joey. For the local fans, because Gunner versus Joey, for the local fans, was the top two babyface guys from Empire, right? So really, you could even argue that that was a dream match for the local fans. Yeah, this felt like this, Hen- is- this, this felt like Henry, who's breaking out, versus a guy that you know a lot of people just don't know. Like it didn't feel like it was anything more. Like if you know, if any if anyone was just looking at this on paper, they would think Henry should win this, no problem. Yeah, and they were able to create authentic doubt. You know, they really—I mean, the build in this match was really good. The 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 way they sort of played with those um, you know established kill shots and tropes from the first match was really effective. I thought. Um, you know, you could argue that the that Billy Buck didn't sell the leg enough after the chair shot around the ring post, and I think there's probably something to that. That may be a fair criticism, but it's not like Henry built the match around that per se. I, I, I thought this was a really effective match. I thought it was really good. It, it, and I'll be honest, I like both guys, and it still was better than I expected it to be. You know, like, it, it, you know, I figured it's going to be a solid little match. They'll use 10 minutes, and it'll be fun for what it is. And then it ended up being a very good match. And, you know, you haven't watched back the VOD, but there's something that, you know, um, Brad Stutz um, brought up on commentary. And, I think Stutz is one of the best commentators in wrestling, and I think this was like a prime example of him like doing something very effectively to get you know a key spot in someone's offense over. And as Henry continuously going for that you know sit in the chair you know you know run around drop kick, and Stutz like kind of said like man like this guy's kind of stupid like why does he keep going for this spot? And I think you know that kind of like blowhard tendency of Henry that he's gonna hit this kick. You're not gonna stop him. He will keep trying to hit this kick. You know, that would, you know, go into the finals and, you know, the rampage he would go on with that stuff. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the... 
the like two fifty power hitter, right? Like yeah. the guy who you know who's, he doesn't hit for average. His on base percentage maybe isn't that good, but when he makes contact, he drives the ball like you know four hundred and fifty feet like, out of the park. <laughs> like that's kind of the way that that was played at times with Anthony Henry. And you know, I you know I part of the reason that I didn't want I mean I have watched the the free matches that uh, Al gets put up that are available on YouTube which are the openers from the two respective nights but or the tournament openers I should say but the reason I haven't gone back and watched everything before we did the show is I kind of wanted the the different perspective between somebody who heard the call and somebody who did and somebody who was in the room and sort of felt the audience but you know I, we'll get to this in the main event the significance of the call because from what I hear in the main event, the call really was important and it was excellently done. We'll talk about that when we get to it though. Yeah. And the next match after this, like seemed like, I don't know when I saw the announcements for the participants on paper, like I'll get your opinion on it, but it seemed like such a no brainer match that had to happen. Like, you know, Chris here versus chip day, you know, Elbows and chips, kicks, like, like it just seemed like such a no-brainer match to do, even in the context of the SEI, where it's like it's not really built on dream matches. Even though the dream match of Ray versus Riddle happened, you know, this felt like a match that needed to happen here. I completely agree, and I actually think there was kind of some subtle genius in this match, um, in terms of like psychology that had been established because. Hero had been taken to the limit, you know, the previous night by a guy who really didn't have an obvious kill shot, but yeah. he was sort of a southern indie staple and one of the guys who's most regarded as one of the top independent wrestlers in the South by southern independent fans. And on night two, he's going up against a guy who's also regarded as one of the top guys from southern independent fans, but who's a, has a, is a much more, I'll just put it this way, violent wrestler. Yeah. Like one of the only guys on the indies who, if you, if you know Chip Day, he does not look like somebody who's absurd in a strike battle with Chris Hero. You know, like, 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 it, to a degree, it's still there somewhat because of the size differential, but I can buy Chip Day kicking Chris Hero in the face and standing toe to toe with him. You know what I mean? Like, that is completely believable to me and completely effective. And what I thought was really neat here, too, is because Chip had wrestled Odinson in round one, even though he won on a roll-up, which, by the way, I didn't mention this at the time, I just thought that was a really good-looking roll-up. Like, it it didn't look like one of those stupid roll-ups where, like, somebody's shoulders are flailing around, you know? Yeah. Like, it just, it looked tight. It looked like something that was a believable finish. But because of the way that Chip had won, like, and knowing how violent he could be, Chip, to me, came across as a guy who could be a hero. And... On top of the fact that he came across as a guy who could beat Hero, I'll just be honest with you. I assumed he was going to beat Hero until the bell rang. Oh, I thought he like, was too. Like I, like I mean, and I guess this went into like them having higher profile guys like a Matt Riddle, a Leo Rush, and a Chris. You know, you know the higher independent stars. You know, I didn't think that he, that like I don't think Chris Hero is like selfish and like say oh, I'm not losing the chip day, but you know it didn't feel like at any point that you know. Well, coming into into the event, it didn't feel like you know Chris here was going to make the finals. It didn't feel like Matt Riddle was going to make the finals. But you know, I think Chris Hero winning that match, you know, kind of added a little bit of drama. So, oh, 
the outsider won. Maybe there's a chance Matt Riddle beats um, Jimmy Rave later. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it absolutely made that. I completely agree that that made it more believable that Matt was going to beat Jimmy. And like it, it. And by the way, you know, I thought this was a really good match, and I love the roll through on the double knee spot from Hero. Yes. And what to me, arguably the spot of the entire tournament. There were some very good spots in this tournament, but was the pile driver that Chris Hero hits here because. It's a different pile driver than what he hit on Kyle, and it's a different one than what we would see in the final that he uses on Anthony Henry. But what I loved about it is Chip, like, it almost looked like Chip was trying to fight out of it with one hand, and and Hero just went. <laughs> like, he just went straight down. And everybody in my section was like, he's dead. <laughs> Yeah, and I love the way and I love the way Chip sold this too. Like he sold it like he had a stinger. Like it sold like he sold it like he just like kind of like his shoulders just went all the way up into his neck. Like it was just I thought he did, like either both guys did a really good job there. And I don't know. So there's something like I kind of want your take on too. Is you mentioned like like Chip Day not looking out of place, you know, doing a strike exchange with Hero. If you know Chip Day's you know offensive repertoire. But I also think that speaks to Hero. Like, even though he uses his size so well, I think he's good at somewhat playing small. And I'm not sure if you watched this match. But say, like, in Progress versus Marty Skrull. I know, I'm the guy that I, that I know you don't, you're not really a fan of, to say the least. But even, you know, Marty, who's an, even a smaller in comparison to Hero than Chip Day is, didn't really feel out of place, you know, throwing a chop at Hero. And I think that just speaks to Hero's ability to, I guess, like, sell, you know, smaller than what his size, you know, actually is, while still being a, you know, believable monster. Yeah, I totally agree with that. He's really good about having the feel for his opponents to know exactly what they're going to deliver that he should sell, like, a big impact spot. You know what I mean? Like... He's like, and that's, people say, oh, well, you just watch the tape to figure it out. No, 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 that's fucking bullshit. Part of that is knowing the room. Part of that is knowing, okay, this is the time where, this is the time or this is the moment where that spot means a maximum and I need to get through it. And by the way, I thought, I think the inverse is true too. Hero, even though I, I, I will never be in love with this spot ever. He's one of the few guys who's kind of figured out how to do the no-sell spot in a way that works. Like, when he takes the double knees from Chip Day and rolls through, it's like, oh, shit, Chip got into this war, and now he's awakened Godzilla. You know what I mean? And now he's got to fucking pay for his sins. <laughs> like, and, and, and that, that, there's, that's a sort of, that's almost a visceral thing. I'm not even sure, like... Yes, it's a part of being a worker, but it's it's a part of being a worker that's a little bit different than what we normally think of when we think of being a worker. See what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it's there's an intuitive quality to that, and also an, ex, an experiential quality. And I mean, this is why Chris Hero is one of the greatest wrestlers who ever lived. Like, you know, I had him like in my 70s or something on my GWE ballot. If I could do that again, he might be in my top 50. Like, oh yeah, this certain, guy is, certainly. Yeah, he's so good. And he's been so good for so long. And, you know, I mean, I think he had a, a hell of a match with Chip. I actually think their exchanges in terms of violence and impact 
from AWE the next night, which uh, unfortunately aren't on tape, well, haven't been released on tape yet, were actually even more impactful than what we saw here. But this was just super, super effective. And by the way, Chip being able to take that pile driver and live to see a fucking another day and walk out under his own strength, he comes out looking better and losing too. You know what I mean? It's another instance where even though Chip lost, he comes out looking better. Now, I will say... Whereas there's lots of guys in this year's tournament that you could sort of see what will be next for them in next year's tournament if they're brought back. I think it's harder to see a path for Chip. And I say that as somebody who loves a guy and thinks he's fucking amazing and wants the best for him. I think it's harder to see an obvious place, this is the guy he goes against next year. That doesn't mean he shouldn't come back next year, mind you. I'm just saying I feel like where some of these other guys... There are obvious places to go with him, with, with them, with Chip. It almost feels like the hero match was like that's the, like, the, the, like that's like that's what should have happened. Like the hero match is like what should have happened, and then it happened, and then it's like then what? Yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, what, and it's interesting because you know last year you know Chip was out in the first round, so like you really couldn't say much about him, you know, regarding that and what should have happened with Chip Day. But you know, he got to the second round. Had a good showing against Chris Hero, and you know, it's like what I, I mean. And this will go in something later where I ask you about you know, SCI twenty seventeen, and not fully fantasy booking it, but certain guys. It's like you know, where, where do you think their their place is in twenty seventeen? And you know, Chip Day, it really is a hard guy to predict there. Yeah, I think you know, I would love if he comes back. I have no clue who's coming back, and that's the honest to god truth. Like, I think. It's pretty obvious who we should expect or hope to see next year based on some things that happen in and around the final, including something that happens after the final ends. <laughs> but I don't, I don't really know, you know. And the great thing about Chip is he's so fucking good that you can put him in against virtually anybody. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like last year they used him to establish Connor Miller in the first round and he was super effective there. You know, but... The unfortunate thing is he doesn't have that built-in story. We have a built-in story for 2017 for several guys, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to that here after we wrap up. We've got, I guess, what, two matches left. There's there's a handful of guys, maybe even more, where it's clear we, we can go with them. And, um, oh, you can go. You can finish that. Finish that. I was just going to say, Chip is a guy where I think on the one hand you could argue his, you know, uh, well, you just opened a new chapter, and I think that's true in a way. On the other hand, there's no obvious new chapter to start writing. I think you have to think about what that would be. Yeah. And speaking of, like, you know, where there's, like, obviously there's certain ways you could go, it was Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle. And I wasn't expecting to get this match, honestly. Like, you know, to be honest, you know, I think, I feel like any other promotion that would have had Chris Hero and Jimmy Rave under the same umbrella would have, you know, very clearly done a Rave versus Hero match. But they didn't, and they went with Rave versus Riddle in a match that could, like, possibly, like, this, like, it possibly, like, never happened again. It felt like a once in a lifetime match, truly, that was happening, you know, in Tennessee. So, you know, just generally, the fact, the fact that this match happened, you know, before they even, you know, you know, got together, what did you think of this match even happening in the first place? To me, it was really 
an incredible match to even think about conceptually. And I actually had no clue what to expect when it would happen. I mean, Riddle's a guy who's has good matches versus everybody, and Jimmy's a guy who has good matches versus everybody, in my opinion. But their styles on paper, I don't want to say they clash, because that's not how I describe it. They're just really different. Like, And I didn't know what to expect. I figured it would be good, but I, I really didn't know what to expect. And I think what ended up happening is that sort of character that Jimmy Rave had established over the course of last year's tournament, and really and even beyond that, sort of in the broader context of, of Southern wrestling, he carried it over once again. You know, like he stole, he, you know, he stole the win from Gunnar Miller last year um, by faking the injury and getting the roll up. Um, he kind of snuck his way through the tournament. This year, you know, he gets the roll up. He didn't really steal it from John Skyler, but once again, you know, he's that roll up is what gets him the win. And here, he's trying to out think. Matt Riddle, out psychology Matt Riddle, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, he's going to do sort of the traditional uh, Jimmy Ray stalling tactics, the sort of like the, the cheap shots, the all that stuff. And Riddle, who's the most over guy in the room, which was clear from night one, he just sort of plays off of that. And the way they played off of it I thought was really interesting because the first half of the match felt like Jimmy, and the second half of the match felt like Riddle, at least to me. Yeah. And they played with the time limit again, just like they've done in the first round. Um, not quite to the same extent what they did with Kyle and Chris, but we knew it was going long. I mean, I think the match went like 18 and a half minutes or something. So it was on the radar that this could be a time limit situation too. And I think it was especially like, oh shit, this could be a time limit situation because knowing that the final is a four-way elimination – it's not like somebody's getting a buy. It would just be a triple threat. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not like somebody. It's not like you're going to get screwed out of a match if that happens. You're still going to get the final. It's just going to be a three way instead of a four way. So the the time limit element was much more believable because of that, in my opinion, anyway. Um, even some of the little stuff here, like uh, the way that you know Jimmy took the apron bump off of the the. Uh, the reverse knee that Riddle does where he springboards backwards. Like Jimmy spun and face planted on the apron, which I thought was kind of cool because when Jimmy does his apron spot, which is the apron STO, everybody goes straight back. Now that Jimmy's taking an apron bump, he's like face planting on it for Riddle. You know, like, it, I just thought that was like an interesting touch. And I think what this match was, like, I think in the back of everybody's mind, especially when Gunnar Miller won, because it's worth noting, a lot of people thought, that they were going to call an audible. I think most people assumed coming into this that Gunnar Miller was going to go to the final. They didn't necessarily think he was going to win, but they thought he would go to the final. Yeah. And But after night one, I think a lot of people thought they were going to call an audible because Joey Lynch was so over with that crowd on night one, and, and they were going to go with Joey. I feel like with Gunnar won, a lot of people thought, oh, well, Jimmy's going to have to go over. But the threat of that time limit made people wonder, and then Riddle being so over made people wonder, and the way they worked the match made people wonder, but what was interesting was, at least for me watching, and I think for the people I was watching with, the story wasn't so much, would would Riddle win? Even though I agree with you that hero winning sort of put that, you know, added to that mystery or that possibility, the story was, how the hell is Jimmy going to win? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I 100% agree there, and the finish played into that too when it's like you know 
Matt Riddle hasn't been the bro mission. He's all twisted up. You know, this is the second time Jimmy Rave is in it. How is he going to escape? And, you know, what's funny about the bro mission is that, you know, usually in Evolve, you know, once Riddle puts it on, like, you're not getting out. And, you know, yes. Rave found a way to escape, you know, through whatever tactics. And when Riddle puts it on again, you know, Jimmy isn't escaping, but he finds a way to, you know, get a, you know, get some kind of pin combination on Matt Riddle and, you know, eke his way to the finals. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of the same deal as the first round. He doesn't win with a finisher. He wins with, like, the fact that he's the veteran. That's why he won the match, because he was the veteran. Not because he was even the better wrestler. He, he won because he was smarter. <laughs> I, thought part, I, thought, I thought it came across as Matt Riddle was, like, clearly the better wrestler, honestly. Like, Matt Riddle, like, when he started firing up and, you know, kicking Jimmy and Matt Riddle is just, you know doing Matt Riddle things, like, it felt like Matt Riddle was positioned as, like, being the, like, being the better man, and that Jimmy had to find whatever means he could to get the job done. Even if it was, you know, him being twisted up in a submission, he found a way to survive it. And, and yeah, go ahead. And, and this also really puts the heat on Jimmy going into the final, because Riddle is the most over guy, and... I don't know if they talked about this on commentary or if this was just a trick of the eye, but in the front row, to us, it looked like Jimmy started tapping the moment the three count hit the mat. Like, his hand was up on Chris, or on Riddle's body and it looked like he was tapping Riddle's wrist or like part of his body right as the three hit the mat. So it almost looked like a photo finish. And, in the building, everybody was like, that's why they did that bit where Brandon Bailey was like, you know, the referee was like, uh, you know, like, there was like, what's going on, what's the finish, Scott Hensley came down, the ring announcer, because in the building, at least, that was an extra element that, that we all sort of saw. Some other people, you know, Chris Zellner being probably the one that was the most uh, loudly pronouncing this theory, claimed that from his perspective, it didn't even look like one of Riddle's shoulders were down. Oh, and it, it actually, yeah, it actually kind of didn't. And, and that adds a little bit to it, too, because when Riddle comes out later, which we'll see, it doesn't feel like just an asshole who's interjecting himself into something that happens after the main event. It feels, you like, know some, what I mean? it feels like someone that has unfinished business, like, hey, you know, earlier I kind of got screwed. So um, Yes, yes. And, I, I, you know, this totally established both those guys – for something down the road for a rematch. I don't know if we'll see one, but this established to lay the groundwork for a potential Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle rematch or encounter in next year's tournament. If they decide to go that way, the story's there. I mean, it's right there for them to do. Yeah, and um, as far as like the match quality goes, I thought this was like honestly a brilliant match, like structure wise. And like if the like if the final wasn't you know as jaw droppingly good as it was, you know this probably would have been my favorite match of the tournament. But, you know, this only wound up being the second match, my second favorite match of the tournament, which, which just speaks to the quality of it in general. But, um, like, like, we've already went over all this stuff, and, you know, the final is the main thing where we just see all of this stuff culminate between the guys, and it's last year, this year, and all the matches that happened, you know, in between Gunnar Miller versus Anthony Henry versus Chris Hill versus Jimmy Rave. And, this match went 29 minutes, like, just a shade under 30. And it honestly didn't feel at all like this match was that long. And I want you to speak on some of the story elements first, because there was, like, some really obvious ones, 
you know, in the first fall. But there's some other ones that I think um, that should probably get talked about too. Well, I mean, first of all, a few things that I think are worth noting right out of the gate is there was, like, if you're looking at this on paper, I think most people, regardless of how familiar they are with Gunnar Miller, would think that he sticks out like a sore thumb, right? Like, not that he's bad. But just that he's the guy that isn't an obvious fit in the context of this turn, this tournament final. Other than the fact that he's the hometown hero, you know. And it's worth noting, Gunnar Miller has been undefeated in every Georgia promotion he's worked in, with the exception of one. But in the like the two Georgia promotions that are primarily centered around sort of like storyline and booking that he's been worked in, which is PCW and Porterdale, uh, and why we wrestle out of Cornelia, he has not lost for a full year in the, in the build to this. So. That element is also something that kind of needs to be in your back of your mind, is that this guy has been like an unbeatable dude throughout the course of, of the year within the context of the indie scene that this tournament has taken place in. But he kind of sticks out at first. And I think, you know, I touched on the dive earlier, but the way they set everything up, like in the early going with the tags, the tag in, the tag out, that spot where Chris Hero and Jimmy Raver in the ring and the whole crowd comes up and like, yeah. oh shit. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that was um honestly pretty incredible. And like the fact that they didn't, you know, give it to him right there, you know, it just was, you know, it felt like everybody in the crowd knew the significance of that because, you know, you might be able to tell, you know, you might be able to like tell me, but like, was the last time like Hero and Rave were like, ever in like the same like even even in the same ring together like I couldn't tell you when the last time it was but I, what I will say is that Jimmy and that Jimmy will tell you this himself uh, he's gone on record publicly even uh, you know in his mind one of the matches that put him on a map as an independent professional wrestler was his match against Chris Hero at the Ted Petty Invitational in 2002 and that's something that he even talked about in the Q&A session earlier that day in front of 25 30 people um, you know who were again at that show so those people and as well as other people recognize that significance right away when those two were in the ring. And then the tease of that, like just the way they played with the tags and they're going, this is an elimination four-way, so there's so much more you can do. And another benefit of the elimination four-way is it makes sense for guys to just take breaks. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Let the other guys beat each other's ass. Especially Jimmy, <laughs> like, especially Jimmy Rave, just like considering that he just had a 19-minute match with Matt Riddle. Yeah, so I mean, like, there's there's a lot of genes. I mean, I think in a way it's easy to forget how great Jimmy was in this tournament because Hero was there, Riddle was there, Anthony Henry had such a breakout party. Gunnar Miller ended up making like the comeback that shocked everybody in the last two matches. Joey Lynch had a comeback. Jimmy was every bit as good this year as he was last year. You know, last year he was the clear tournament MVP. I think it's harder to pick down an MVP this year, but he was every bit as good. And the psychology and build. You know, everybody wanted to see him versus Hero. You know, and this was kind of a situation where it was like uh, the, you know, the 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 it's like the the first ECW TV that I remember watching, like as it aired and not on tape delay, was this angle they did where Shane Douglas and um, Tommy Dreamer and Sandman surrounded Raven, and the storyline was the enemies that Raven has created that surrounded him, and that's kind of what they did with the Jimmy thing here. It's like. You think you're the indie legend. Oh, no, 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 no. You're, here's the real indie legend, Chris Hero. 
oh, look, here's a guy you've been, you know, Anthony Henry, who you wrestled tomorrow night at AWE and who you had the great match with last year in the tournament. Oh, well, also, here's, uh, you know, the guy you cheated and stole your win from last year, Gunnar Miller. It's like the enemies of Jimmy were all there, and it was like, how the hell is he going to survive this now? You know, like, <laughs> you, like, it was like a target was on him. And some of the stuff they did to play with that, with the tag in and tag out, the way, like, the exchanges that he had, like, even some stuff that I think people won't necessarily get. Like, there's a spot where Anthony Henry hits him with that spin kick, which last year knocked him out, you know, and Jimmy sort of fights through it. And that last year, that was a KO shot. And I just, little stuff like that was so effective, but, you know... They didn't rush and fall. You know, this went 30 minutes. I don't know how long it was to the first fall happened, but it was a ways in. Oh, yeah, it definitely yeah. was. And um, I guess, like, something that you know, mentioned here as far as, like, the tags go, it was, like, specifically who was tagging who and the way they set up certain alliances. Like, they had Chris Hero and Gunnar Miller, you know, tagging yeah, yeah. in and out with each other. And they had Anthony Henry and Jimmy Rave, who, you know, I think at this point had faced each other two times, right? Yes, SCI and then for Flatline Pro earlier this year. Yeah, like, so, you know, those two teaming together and then Hero and Miller teaming together, I thought was just, like, that was an interesting way to split that up. Like, I could have saw them going with Anthony Henry and Miller, you know, two two people that hate Jimmy's guts going up against, you know, Rave and, you know, like his old indie buddy. Yeah, yeah I mean, there was a lot of elements that they could have used, and I, it's just, it's amazing to me, like... I just, I just thought, thought this match was so, so brilliant. It's unbelievable. Like, honestly, I think this is a, a, one of the smartest wrestling matches I've ever seen. Maybe the smartest I've ever seen live. Um, like, and, you know, I get, I'll go ahead and just mention it now. The fit, the, Jimmy going out first. That was such an ECW move. <laughs> it was really amazing because I don't think anybody really expected it, right? Like, I, like, I would have, I would have expected Henry. I don't know that anybody really thought that Jimmy, was going to repeat, but I damn sure don't think anybody thought he was going to lose first. And not only does he does he take the fall first, but the way it happens, they do the bit where Gunnar Miller hits his finish, the CTE, which had been established as a killer earlier because Joey Lynch took an insane bump off of it. Yes. You know, and rather than that be the finish, though, Jimmy rolls to the floor. Now, if you paid attention to last year's tournament... This is what happened when Anthony Henry spin kicked him in the face. He rolled to the floor, and then he came back in and snuck on his finish and was able to, you know, tap tap Henry out. Um, what happened here is he gets back in the ring, and you think, and then he small packages Gunner, and you're like, holy shit, are they actually going to have Gunner lose? You know, the same way. And instead of that Gunner rolls through on the small package and beats him the exact same way that Jimmy had beaten him last year. So not only did he hit his finish, which was important because you're trying to establish this guy and that finish is credible, but he got a complete version of the comeuppance because he beat Jimmy the exact same way Jimmy had beat him the year before. I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I like on like if I was just, you know, going into this match, you know, blind without knowing, you know, like, the final two and all that stuff, or any, like, of the circumstances regarding, like, the um, order of eliminations, I would think that they would do Gunner and Rave in the final two, and that they would have done maybe the exact same thing. But the fact that they did that as the first elimination, you know, that put the entire match on notice. Like, yeah, we're, like, we're guaranteeing something new. Gunner has already got his redemption. Now, what, now what's next? 
Yeah, and I mean, this was after the big spot with, with Gunner doing the dive when they were all four still in the match, which kind of saw, I mean, that to me was the biggest reaction in the building that night. And that to me was the spot that I think really got everybody on, not necessarily on Gunner's side because there were still hero cheering sections, Henry, whoever, but I think if there was anybody left who was upset by the idea that Gunner Miller might win, it pretty well was over after that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that that dive was huge. It, like, completely ingratiated and was like, okay, this guy isn't a guy who's going to be on cruise control. You know, this is, again, Chad Campbell talked about this in his excellent piece over the Place to Be Nation, but it's true. Like, that single moment is as amazing an individual moment as I've ever seen in a wrestling match because literally as he was flying over the top rope, I thought to myself, that's it, he's fine. If they put him over now, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to be upset. It's not going to, you know, like it's not going to bother anyone. And even the way they did the murder kicks in that first stanza when everybody was still there, where they're running around the ring and Anthony Henry's kicking everybody to the chair right in front of me, by the way. You know, these were just absolutely brutal. There was, like, Gunnar Miller had got a cut from one of them, which it wasn't a huge cut, but it added, like, an extra element. It was noticeable. Yeah, and it added an element to it. It absolutely did, because it was like, holy shit, this is a fucking fight. You know, this isn't some bullshit, like, you know, choreographed wrestling. These guys are beating each other's ass. And, by the way, I should mention, too, the bit where everybody's leveling each other with their biggest spots on the on the floor, and Jimmy goes to the eye poke, was fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> like... The perfect, just the perfect to, move for him. Like, everyone else is doing this crazy shit. Like, nah, no, no, no. Yeah, just a, just absolutely genius. I just thought the way that they let Anthony get over with that slew of kicks and like the big drama and the, you know, he came out looking like a fucking beast at that point. And even though I don't think really anybody expected him to win, at that point, after he made that run, the crowd started to tilt in his favor, and I think just on, on, as purely as a fan, setting aside you know what any booking insights you think you do or don't have, I think you lose yourself, or at least I did, and I know most people around me did, and you start to think maybe Anthony Henry can win this match. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, 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 it became a much more open-ended drama at that point. And you know, like I think you know. Like obviously after that you get the Gunner Rave elimination and then we get you know Hero eliminating Henry and as you say that Henry looked like an absolute beast up at this point in the match and then he's going up you know to you know go for this Hurricane Rana and the way Hero catches him into get another power driver variation where I guess this is what you would call like when he captures the guy's arms, not really in a package pile driver way, but you know the guy's arms go around um hero's legs, and he it's has, like a Styles Clash where he goes straight down. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. So like he murders Henry with that, and you know even like even as hot as Henry felt at that moment, it didn't felt like they picked the wrong time to get rid of him. No. In fact, if anything, it felt like the right time. And here's here's the thing I think that was kind of genius about this, and I credit both Hero and Henry for this. From my perspective as a fan in the building, in that moment it felt like Chris Hero did that because he had no choice, and that was and he knew he was done. 
Like, if he doesn't hit that pile driver on Henry, he's going to lose. Yeah. Right? Like, it felt like almost an act of murderous desperation. <laughs> yeah, because like, yeah, okay. Henry, Henry's on a rampage at this point. Henry's hot. He's the hot guy. He's the one that's hitting all the big moves. The crowd's behind him. And then Chris Hero just, like, out of nowhere, you know, as far as, like, as cliche as that is now, he hits the pile driver, like, out of desperation. Yeah, he hits, he uses what he has, which is his size and, and sort of power and just general sense of violence to overcome the guy who's faster and more, um, you know, I, I don't know if the term aggressive is right, but certainly the guy whose impact had been the strongest at that moment. I, I just thought that eliminated, you know, that was great too. It was so on point. I mean, here's the thing. At this point, when Henry goes out and it's down to Hero and Gunner, I think... Everybody had to have known Gunner was going to win at this point, but it became something kind of like the situation with Riddle and Rave, where I think everybody sort of knew Gunner was going to win. But the question was, how the fuck is he going to win? You know what I mean? Like, how is he going to beat this guy? And, you know, one other thing I didn't touch on earlier that I should have, by the way, is in the early portion of the match... Kyle and Chip Day had done the shoulder block routine with Hero yeah. in their matches, and when oh, it came down, yes, to, yes, 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 when it came down to Gunner and, and, and uh, Hero, Gunner laid him out. Nobody else was able to take Hero down in that game, and Gunner laid him out with a you know relative ease, and that kind of established what we would get when it came down to the two of them, because whether or not people accepted Gunner. As the tech, technical wrestler or the at the same skill level as Hero, they knew that power versus power, brute force versus brute force, he could match up. That had already been established and established in a very clear way. So I just thought that that kind of you know on the front end of the match, they sort of set up what was going to happen on the back end, even though none of us knew that was coming. And thank you for bringing it up because you know once we do get to you know Miller versus Hero, you know. We get a moment where, you know, Miller's already done his, you know, spear. And I know, like, I mean, like from listening to you on other shows, like, I know that you're very high on the Dustin Rose versus Vader match from one of the Clash of Champions from um, 1994. Great match, yep. And, you know, I said this to you, and I don't like this, like, the Gunnar Miller hits a spear on Chris Hero that really felt like some Dustin Rose Vader shit. Like, once he hits this, <laughs> once he hits this spear, like, it felt like, oh shit, like, the old cliche business is picking up. Like, okay, this is real now. Gunnar Miller is on the same level. He just put Hero on his ass. Yeah, he has a great looking spear. I mean, that's where I think the football background does him the most benefit, is he's like the only guy in indie wrestling, maybe all of wrestling, that has a spear that I think legitimately looks sick it's a, it's as fuck. A, it's an amazing looking spear. Yeah, like it looks like a finish. Like, which is funny because it's really not his finish. He, he basically uses like kind of a version of the old Monty Brown pounce as a finish, but which is sort of kind of a variant of a spear, but it's a different version of the spear than what we're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he just. He's very, he's not a finished product, which he would admit himself, but I think he acquitted himself so well in this match, and the fact that he was able to go toe-to-toe with Hero, have that Dustin Rhodes-Vader moment like you mentioned, and then when Hero survives that initial storm, like, I think a lot of people, it was kind of like the, the Leo Rush-Anthony Henry thing. 
you might have known in your heart of hearts Gunnar Miller was going to win, but you forgot. You know? Like, yeah, it's like, oh, man, is Chris, Chris Hero, like, you know, can Gunnar Miller really do it? And, like, even though there is that, you know, that fantastic spear, and then you can, like, I can, like, I mean, even on, like, um, watching it on video, you can feel, like, the change. Like, you can feel, like, Gunnar Miller is, like, has some real momentum behind him now. And then Chris Hero, you know, he weathers the storm and gets back up, and, you know, you kind of start to feel like, ah, oh, man, it's Chris Hero. And they, uh, another thing I love is that, you know, when Hero was, like, saying, like, the strong style 16 this year, the commentary would put over his, um, you know, tournament credentials. And here, in the commentary, they always made the mention, you know, Chris Hero is the most decorated tournament um, tournament guy, you know, in this um, tourney right now. So it really did, you know, come across as, all right, Millard had that going for him, but he's going, he's going up against God right now in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's going against, like, the king of that style of indie wrestling. You know, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I, I, I get, I haven't heard the call, but I'll just say this. I've heard from wrestlers and fans that the call of this main event was brilliant. I think it was Dan Wilson and, and Stutzy who were calling this. And I've heard that the call of this main event was absolutely excellent. That, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that the call actually made it better than it felt in the building. Because in the building, I thought it was like a four and three quarter star match. <laughs> but maybe it did. You know, it, like it, being it, able it to touch on all those nuances. It did. I mean, I, I can't, and again, like, shame on me, like, because I can't remember, you know, a lot of the word for word stuff. But it's something that, you know, Brad Stutz is like amazing at in that I think you could watch you know a lot of those CWF Mid-Atlantic matches with no commentary and they're still great but when you have Stutz on commentary it feels like he takes it to a whole nother level because he's so excited he's you know making everything that's happening right now seem like a big deal you know Gunnar Miller spearing hero is a big fucking deal you know, yeah, and, 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 I mean, look, I love Stutz. He's, he's my boy. Don't get me wrong. But Dan Wilson is great too. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, he great. knows, he knows all these players. Like, he's a guy who's called pretty much every Gunnar Miller ma- match of any note. He's called for Empire Wrestling, you know? So, he knows, he brings that aspect too, where he kind of can play a little bit off of that, maybe in an area where Stutz, he doesn't know as much. And I just feel like, you know, I haven't even heard the call. But everything I've heard from the people who've heard it is that it was as good a wrestling call as you're going to see, like, in 2016. That it's not going to get any better than that main event. And I just wanted to put that over, even though I haven't heard it. Because when you have wrestlers who are telling you that, these are guys who can be very critical of commentary, even when it's good commentators, because they feel like guys are missing obvious shit. And when I have multiple wrestlers who tell me, dude, go watch the fucking VOD because you're not going to believe how good the call of this match is, that really speaks to how good those two guys are. Maybe the best two guys in wrestling. I mean, that's not a knock on my boy Emil, who was there, or Al Getz, who I think is also great, or Cecil from uh, CWF Mid-Atlantic, who's also great. It's not a knock on any of those, but Brad and Dan are as good as it gets. Yeah, they were. And, like, I think um, Dan, correct me, like, Again, never mind. But, like, Dan was the only one I can think of during any of these matches where he called a match by himself. And, you know, as much as I like the other guys and Emil, um, Cecil, and Stutz, you know, I think Dan was, like, maybe the only guy that could have, you know, called one of these matches by himself, though. Yeah, he's and he's done that. I mean, he's done that for Empire. He's called entire Empire shows 
by himself in the booth. There, you know, he's called the Tooth and Nail events in the booth. The Crazy from the Heat uh, from last year, which is a great show, by the way. Uh, he he called by himself, so he's been in a position to have to carry it that way. You know, I mean, he's a really, really, really good commentator. Probably, you know, one of those guys that it's like, how the hell did this guy slip through the cracks? Because he also is a great manager. Like the yeah. Reverend is an awesome act and totally unique. It blows my mind that the guy didn't fucking have a huge career in wrestling. I mean, it's not obviously not over, but I mean, if I if I had owned a multi million dollar wrestling company, a guy with his mind and who was as talented as he is would be one of the fucking first people I want to hire. But what do I know? Um, you know, it's just. I, that the whole package, and man, to get back that finishing run in this main event, <laughs> it was just so like it wasn't like these two were by themselves in the ring for that long because the eliminations came so late in the match that they're you know what I mean. But yeah. just that the level of intensity that was there, and the way they delivered, and the way that CTE looked, that finish, it was just completely believable. Like, you believed that Chris Hero would go down to that. You know, like, and that's hard to do because not everybody can take that spot in a way that's a believing, believable finish. I mean, Some we, guys well, just I mean we just can't. talked about in the first round where, you know, a guy as great as Kyle Matthews, and this, like, he didn't have a finish that looked believable facing Hero. Like, but Gunner comes in with his CTE and, uh, like, demolishes Hero, and it's like, you can believe Chris Hero, the six foot five, two hundred fifty plus pound guy, is like, yeah, he's done. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. It's crazy how effective it was. Like, I, you know, and even like when when, when uh, Chris rolls through on the suplex, you know, like that that Hulk up spot again. I'm never going to be the biggest fan of those, but in that moment, in this setting, in the main event of this show. Knowing that that had been what he had kind of finished away to get to the finals, he'd done something similar. You know, like Chip was making a run and Chip hit the double knees, and it looks like Chip might even be able to win off the double knees, and then Hero rolls through it, and that's where the kill shot comes. And when he rolled through that suplex from Gunnar Miller, you think, oh shit, is he going to do the same thing to Gunnar Miller that he did to Chip Day? And he tried, and he failed because Gunnar delivered the big kill shot. He was able to get it off. I just thought it was just masterfully done. I mean, you established so much in this. You, you you put over Anthony Henry as a guy who was this close and maybe if the breaks had happened, he'd been able to do it. You protect Jimmy in a way, too. You know, like, it, it, it's not like he loses all credibility. He made it to the finals again. He, he wrestled a longer period of time than anybody on the shows other than Chris Hero, so he logged the most minutes other than Hero. Like, he lost on a roll-up, which, yeah, he ate a finish, but... It's not like he definitively KO done finish. There's no, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like there's a there's a window open for a lot of stories next year involving those guys. And then in the post match, Matt Riddle comes down and presents the Greg Hollander Trophy. And you know, for some people, like I, I can see some people might be like, oh, well, he lost. Why is he even there? But you already talked about it. it. Like Matt Riddle kind yeah. of got screwed. Yeah, Matt Riddle is the only guy that kind of got screwed, exactly. Like, he's the only guy that kind of the finish to that match was in question. And now he's there presenting the trophy. He's the most over guy in the room, presenting the trophy to probably the second most over guy, certainly the most over guy with the locals, Gunnar Miller. You know, and you got that moment, and you realize Matt Riddle may be back for this trophy next year. 
If he, you know, if he's not signed up by WWE, I would expect that he would be back at the Phoenix City Invitational next year. And I hope he because is. They, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. I mean, they left the door open for him a hundred percent on that. You know, he's got unfinished business, like you said earlier. You know, I'll go a step further on what you said. You know, like, like again, like you already said, you're not a fan of the Chris Hero, like no selling spots in that way. But honestly, I think that that kind of spot needed to happen, where it established Gunner like he like killed the monster. Like Chris Hero is rising up; he's gonna you know do exactly what he did to Chip Day again. But you know, Gunner manages to vanquish him, you know, in a completely you know believable way, and he looks like and he really does come across as a conquering hero. And it does, and it really is a feel good moment when he does you know get the one two three on Hero. Yeah, I mean, they've successfully been able to swing that crowd 100% from, you know, what had happened the night before. Again, maybe it doesn't translate. I'm actually glad it doesn't translate as bad as in person. But, like, they swung the crowd. Gunner delivered 100%. The guy, I mean, I, I can't say enough about how hard that guy worked. A lot of guys, after having a bad match on a big, uh, really, the biggest thing he's done in his career up to this point. And it was a homecoming for him, so it's like, yeah. Yeah. That a lot of guys, especially at his experience level, he's only a couple years in the business. That that would have been it. They would have been falling to pieces, and they they would they would not have been able to deliver at near the level he was able to deliver on night two. And I think it's a huge testament to him that not only was he able to deliver that match with Joey Lynch, but that he was able to go into a thirty minute final with three of the best wrestlers on the planet and not look out of place when he won. Like that is not an easy thing. Given where he was on night one, to be at that place in night two and be completely credible, it's a testament to the booking. It's a testament to the guys he worked with, but it's also a testament to him because uh, we've all seen situations where guys have not been able to recover from a singular bad moment. You know what I mean? Like, and he was able to do it. He was able to transcend that, and I, that's a huge, huge credit to him. Um, and I don't think that should get lost. Like. Yes, he was in there with some of the best wrestlers in the world, but just because you're in there, he still needed to do the things that he did so that people wouldn't be disappointed with him winning in the end. You know what I mean? And right. no one was. You know, I kind of like I, I guess like a good comparison for that would kind of be like the Roman Reigns versus AJ Styles matches, where everyone knows. You know, there's some people that are still you know. Waiting, like waiting, you know, to see about Roman Reigns. You know, some people are sold on him. I'm sold on him. You're sold on him. So, for a lot of people, though, you know, it was like, okay, Roman Reigns is in there with the best wrestler in the world. And you know, I thought, you know, that Roman was so good in that matches that I couldn't imagine anyone complaining about the Roman winning any of those. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I even think sort of the character of of of, of Gunnar Miller. At this point in the southern independent world, particularly the state of Georgia, um, and you know that East Tennessee chat around area around Chattanooga, is kind of similar to the Roman Reigns character. You know, after WrestleMania this year, you know, I I, I screamed at him and Jeff Bailey after the main event. It probably wasn't picked up on camera, but as they walked by and as the crowd started to filter out, and some people were going to take pictures with him. I said, uh, you know, he's not a you're not a bad guy, you're not a good guy, you're the guy because. <laughs> That's kind of what his character is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's a hometown hero, but he's got the heel manager with him, Jeff G. Bailey, and we don't know where that story's going to end up. You know what I mean? And he worked really aggressive against Joey Lynch. I wouldn't say he was full-blown heel, but he was heel-ish. He had an edge, you know? Yeah. And 
I and he needed that edge. And that to me, like kind of you know that parallel with Roman Reigns kind of carries over to that level too. I just to me, like I don't know where you would rate that main event in terms of like match of the year or whatever. Um, to me, it's my match of the year because for somebody who favors continuity and booking, psychology, build, the ability to establish things on a show or shows, sort of pay them off by, by uh, you know, hearkening back to context, those are some of my favorite things, if not my absolute favorite things in pro wrestling. And to me, the difficulty level of what was accomplished actually even makes it because I don't yes it's a four way elimination which is easier than a fatal four way would be but I still feel like it's harder to do those things in the context of a multi-man because more things can go wrong yeah like and the the fact that they were able to execute that so well you know I'm not saying there's no way that could be supplanted as my match of the year it certainly is possible but right now as we sit here you know that's my match of the year for 2016 you know, in a way, because I think I watched the Scenic City VOD like a day or two after I put out my like top 100 list, and I kind of regretted you know putting my top 100 list out at that point because like I thought it was in the safe zone you know right after G1, but you know, God like if I had watched this match you know before I made the list you know it probably would have made you know my top 20 or 30 because I feel like it's that impressive like and you know. It almost sounds like, you know, a big drop-off from, like, it's your match of the year to being in my top 20 or top 30, with them putting in perspective how much how much wrestling I watch. You know, I don't I don't want it to sound like I'm sliding that match, because I thought it was, like, absolutely incredible. And one of those matches where, as a feat and what it accomplished, I think is, you know, one of the more impressive things in professional wrestling this year. And the fact that, you know, in the end... After a shaky start, we did wind up getting the redemption story, even in like in a you know kayfabe way and in you know a meta you know fan woven theory way, we got you know a redemption story. Yeah, I, I just feel like it was super effective to me. Like, and look, I like uh, like myself like myself. You watch tons of wrestling. I don't think it's outlandish to have that match in twenties or thirties, and I don't think that would be an insult. I think what's really important, though, is that if you watch this, if you watch that main event and don't think it's a great match, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what to say. I literally don't know what to say to somebody who watches the main event of this year's Phoenix City Invitational and doesn't think it's great. Like, it doesn't have to be your number one. It doesn't have to be in your top hundred necessarily. But if you watch that match and don't think it's a great match, you and I are not watching the same thing or we're so far apart that we probably have absolutely nothing in common because it's as obviously a great match as I've seen all year you know like I just I just can't say enough about it and and it leaves so much room for stuff to do next year too which is so critical right like and, and even guys who weren't in the final that didn't make it to that point there's a lot of you know room like somebody like a Joey Lynch there's a lot of things you could do with Joe Lynch. I'm not so sure he shouldn't win next year. You know, like there's an open door for him. So I left, I left the I left Joey I left this tournament thinking Joey Lynch needs to be in the final four like next year. Yeah, I did too, hundred percent. You know, like so there's stories even with guys that didn't get to the final. I'd say Joey uh, 
you know, and Matt Riddle being probably the two most obvious cases of guys, but there are guys who didn't even make it to the final this year where you could foresee a significant role in place for them in next year's tournament already. And I think that also really speaks to the quality of the tournament, that you can look at the field from this year and say, yeah, this is a year, a once-a-year event, but I here's the story and here's what it's going to be. Like, you already know. You're waiting, you're waiting a year in advance for more, you know, developments in these stories, which is insane for, you know, again, for something that, you know, yearly, you know, like a yearly thing, you know, you're already waiting, like, oh, man, I wonder what's going to happen this year if we get, you know, Matt Riddle to come redeem himself from getting screwed by Jimmy Rave, or if, you know, Joey Lynch had a really good showing last year, I wonder if he's going to get further, like... There's just so many things that, you know, like coming into this, I actually thought Anthony Henry was going to win. You know, before we, you know, got any of the matchups or any of that stuff, I thought Anthony Henry had gathered such a buzz that he was like so clearly the guy from the Southern Indie scene that's about to break out. Anthony Henry might win. So there's just so much stuff that I'm just looking forward to even just a year away. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and I, that is when you know a tournament is well booked. When. It ends, and people who were there and people who weren't there but did watch it are excited a year out for what's coming next. That is a good wrestling tournament, to tie this back into the you know theoretical, broader theme of the show. That is a good wrestling tournament. When you establish a line of interest that starts from last year's show to this year's show and then carries on to the future, that's when you've done a wrestling tournament right. You know, when you fail is when you don't have that degree of continuity, in my opinion. So, like, I guess, like, one thing before, you know, we move on to, you know, more stuff regarding tournaments is, you know, not to fantasy book it, because, you know, this this kind of stuff is, you know, hard to predict, but, you know, is there a Final Four that you see? Because, you know, for next year's Phoenix City, I kind of envision Gunnar Miller repeating, so... Is there a Final Four that you, you know, could imagine, you know, being in a final? I mean, if it was me and assuming nobody gets signed, and I think that that might be a big assumption because it, with indie wrestling nowadays, anybody at any moment can get signed. But um, assuming that everybody that's out there is still available, like, there's a part of me that says you have, you can't have all returnees in the final, right? Like, but, but having said that, I think I would do all returnees in the final. <laughs> and, if I, and, and if I had my brothers at this moment, the final four would be Gunnar Miller, uh, Matt Riddle, Anthony Henry, and Joey Lynch. And um, if I had my brothers and, and it was my call and uh, I had my say, uh, Joey Lynch would win the SCI next year. I, and, and, and the reason why is I believe that – the strength of a tournament like this is that is the ability to credibly put over fresh people. Yeah. The first year, you know, Jimmy Rave had the narrative. In a way, it was a fresh person because it was the rebirth of Jimmy Rave in some ways. But also, you were trying to establish the tournament. This year, you put over Gunnar Miller. Next year, you know, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with Anthony Hinton. I wouldn't have a problem with any of those guys. I even think based on how over he is, Matt Riddle could win, and I don't think it would be wrong. But... Joey Lynch would be who I would have win if it was me next year. And going, you know, past the SCI, and 
we're not going to talk about the SEI directly, but we're going to talk about, you know, this tournament format. And we're going to compare it to, you know, the way other tournaments, you know, historically have been ran. And, you know, there's big ones, you know, the G1 Climax and Best of Super Juniors and Super J Cup in New Japan, the Battle of Los Angeles in um, PWG, the 16-carat tournament in WXW, or the Super Strong Style tournament in Progress. You know, it's been a really interesting year for tournaments in wrestling. And I guess, like, the one thing I wanted to ask you was, like, as far as, like, tournament formats go, you know, which one do you think is the the most conducive to getting the best, you know, overall tournament? Not just the best matches, but the overall, you know, landscape of what you want a tournament to accomplish and be. I mean, I think it is a single elimination two-night event. And I'm sure some people are going to hear that and go, here he is in the tank of the SCI again. But there's a reason for that. Like, the reason is I feel like there's not – you don't have the bloat that you have from a three-night event, which I always worry about. Like, if you you decide to go single elimination but you do three nights, you have to worry about bloat. If a show goes long on night one – God, you better hope it doesn't go night long on night two because you're going to completely lose your crowd on the third night. That's often the problem with bowling. It's oh, not yeah. the matches. It's just they lose people by the end because people are so fucking tired. Even like you know? even as even as just like someone that's watching, you know, from home, I'm just like by the time we get, I get to the third night, I don't want to watch any more PWG, and I'm and I'm like less critical of PWG than you, and I don't even want to watch it after that third night. Yeah, it's just and that. Look, it's hard to criticize a company that sells out their shows in five seconds or whatever the hell it is, but. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I do think that that is a – that's a difficult – I also think 24 people is just too much. But, um, you know, that's just me. I, it's not a knock um, on, on them or what they do. It's just my view is that three nights is too much for a single elimination. One night could be okay if you have the right – if you have the right field. Like if you have guys who – know how to smartly work. I feel like you can do a one-night single elimination and it will work, even with 16 guys. But I think it's a huge risk. Whereas if you span it out over two nights and, and, and you you know sort of smartly do it... Like, one of the things about the SCI that's unique is that the final is a four-person final. Now, a four-way rather than, you know, semifinals and then a, a main event. Now, I could see somebody who would say that they prefer it to be, you know, semifinals and then a main event. And last year, I was critical of the decision to do four-way four the final. I was like, I don't really like it. I wish they'd done semifinal. But having seen it two years now, I actually prefer this. I think it's interesting. I think they've proven that they can make the the uh, four-way elimination work. I prefer it to doing a triple threat or something on the front end of a tournament, which is you know what I guess CZW does with Best of the Best, for example. Like. I prefer that the final be that rather than a bunch of them in the beginning because I think it dilutes the value of the multi-man match if you have four of them to open a show. Yeah. Like, to, to me, I just prefer that if you're going to do that. Um, when it comes to the round robins, there are things about the round robins I like, right? Like, nothing is left to the imagination. We don't, like, in other words, no fan feels cheated if you wanted to see a match. Like, if you were somebody who wanted to see a Jimmy Ray versus Chris Hero singles match, you might come out of the SCI going, oh, shit. You know, I, that was a match I really thought was going to happen. I didn't get it. If you wanted to see Chip Day versus Matt Riddle, you didn't get to see that at all. You know, like, you know, like, so there are, I completely understand 
the advantage of a round robin is there's no room to be let down, right? Like, I mean, I guess you could say if there's blocks like the G1, you might still be getting let down a little bit, but within the context of the blocks, you're not going to be let down. You're going to see every possible match, and that's really cool because it gives you something to look forward to. You know what's going to happen. You know on this date I'm going to get to see this match. It's going to be awesome, whereas there's mystery um, and potential disappointment. But I also feel like it's a risk-reward calculation with that. Like, and to me, the reward of not knowing on you know a single elimination field, if you if you have a smart booker, the reward of that like surprising like holy like I was in the building this year when they announced Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle and Chris Hero versus Chip Day, and it got massive pop. You know, it was during intermission, so it ain't on the VOD, but. Like, like, it got a mass, like, like, the place came, like, like maybe the, the biggest, biggest pop of the entire tournament, in fact, might have been when they announced Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle. Like, it, it was, like, super, super loud. Like, huge reaction. Like, maybe the biggest reaction I've ever heard for anything during a pro wrestling intermission, and I've been going to wrestling shows for a long ass time. And you can't, you can't get that out of the round robin, because they've already given up the goo. You know what you're getting. Um, the, the other thing, thing with the round robin too is it's, it's just it's, it's hard for those not to be bloated. Like, like I don't care how good they are. Like to me, I have not watched a single G1 match this year. Now, cynical people will say, "Well, that's because Dylan doesn't really like New Japan," but that's horseshit. Up until the G1, I've watched every single New Japan show that has made tape and it's full uh, in full this year, every one. But I got behind. On the first two nights, even though I intended to start watching, and then I just threw in a towel. I was like, fuck it, I'll go back and watch it later, because on those round robins, you get so deep in, it's like, shit, if you miss a couple days, you're behind on the narrative, you're behind on the match, it's over. You can't catch up. It's easy, you know? it's easy to give up once you get behind. Like, say, like, and I'm lucky to some extent, because, you know, I miss, like, some shows live due to other reasons, and I'm lucky I actually got to, like, catch, you know, some of the tour towards the end. And, you know, another key to, you know, at least, like, these t- specific tournaments, you know, from New Japan, because, you know, everyone covers New Japan now. Like, it's super hard to stay spo- um, stay unspoiled. And then when you're getting all these tournament matches, it's just, like, really hard to care about it um, when you get when you already know the results, considering that you're already, you know, being, you know, hammered with so many matches in general. Yeah, yeah, and I also think one of the problems with the round robin, too, is... Eventually, you're forced to do one of two things. You're forced to either parody book. Now, there's two kinds of parody book. There's the parody booking of the SCI, which is, you know, Alan Getz has talked about, uh, which is this year they tried to make it so that every round, every, in every round one match, there wouldn't be a clear winner. You know what I mean? Like, sort of like the NFL schedule, when it modeled after. But then there's the other sort of parody booking where fucking, like, Yano beats Tanahashi. And you're like, all right. Like, you know, like, no other time is that ever going to happen. But magically in the G1, the rules don't apply. Well, magically in the G1, Tamatanga, you know, gets a fall on Tanahashi. Yeah, like, it's like, come on, man. Like, I yes, some of these guys are good enough where they can make you believe in the micro, but when you step back and look at it in the macro and look at how often that has to happen in these tournaments, it's like almost... Uh, you know, like, like all right, fuck this. this, because it's just not believable. Like, it, it, it's it doesn't. I don't care how good the execution is. Certain guys should not beat other guys. Right. And 
it, it's very hard, even if you're telling injury storytelling narratives over the course of a tournament, it's still hard to establish that in a credible way, regardless of how good the talent is. It doesn't matter. I, it's just an innate flaw in that system. The other problem is, as you get toward the end of a round robin, if you don't parody book, then you have the situation where a bunch of matches are just lame ducks. Yeah. You know, like, it's just like, okay, whatever, like, that's cool. These guys might be really good workers. It might be really fun to see them wrestle, but... Why does it matter? Why does it matter? And especially in a tournament setting, that is really bad because in a tournament setting, it's all about who wins. Like, it's not a case of wins and losses don't matter, bullshit narrative you try to spin or whatever. That's ultimately what matters. And I... That's a real problem with the round robin model is... You're forced to you're, you're forced to pick one of two evils, evils, either unrealistic parody booking that sort of spits in the face of the booking you do the rest of the year, or a situation where you have a bunch of lame ducks as you get closer to the final and people only care about one or two matches on the show, and, and that's just something that's embedded in that process. It doesn't really matter how good the wrestling company or the wrestlers or even the matches are. The tournament itself is going to suffer from that. Yeah, and I think you did a good job, you know, giving a rundown of what, like, the cons of the round robin. But I think what you said, you know, earlier is um, you mentioned that the SEI really isn't a grab bag tournament. And I think round robins are probably the tournament format that are more catered to, like, hey, um, you're interested in these matches, you can go seek, uh, seek, um, seek these out. Like, I don't think anyone like if they like weren't you know following along with g1 in real time that they're going to go back and watch you know tamatanga versus tenzan they're going to go and seek out everything else that they're interested in so from that aspect you're not really you know don't have to invest all the way into the g1 you can just grab whatever matches are interesting to you in particular back to the um single elimination tournament format and this is something that the SEI did well that we talked about is that no matches like ever felt like, you know, they were similar to another match. Like all these matches felt completely different. And, you know, the problem with a lot of stuff I noticed in single elimination matches is that, you know, especially say in like, um, PWG, you know, a lot of these matches like feel the same. So you get kind of numb by the time we're getting to, you know, the second stage of the third stage. Cause it's like, you know, I've already seen a match exactly like this. So, you know, I think, you know, how key is it when you're only running, you know, a two-day tournament to make sure the matches feel fresh? I think it's, I think it may be the single most important thing about a two-day tournament, um, is to make sure that the matches aren't, aren't super repetitive. Because if you do have too much repetition, it, it, I don't care how good the matches are, it's gonna become a chore. Like, like, this is really weird, weird to say, but, and, and some, some people might not agree with this, you know, I, and I, I would understand, by the way, if somebody didn't agree with this, because I get the flip side of the argument, but to me, if I had a tournament that, like, on the first night, they had eight matches that were four and a half stars, but they were all exactly the same, Yeah. I'm probably not going to like it as much as I might like night one of the SCIs. Maybe, maybe I would, but I kind of doubt it, because... The like, like to me, the variety and seeing the different styles 
and seeing the different approaches and seeing the groundwork and the framework that's going to be set up for the subsequent rounds is part of what makes a single elimination tournament so interesting in the first place. You know, the the ability to have like a super blowaway great match, that's great, but that's not necessarily the most important thing within the context of a wrestling tournament, at least when you're talking about it from a broader perspective of looking at the show as a whole. Like, was the show effective in its goals, but also was the show, show entertaining? Did the show deliver on that tournament vibe, or did it just feel like a bunch of guys trying to collect this is awesome chance? Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with guys doing that. Honestly, I don't. But it's hard for me to watch a show that has a bunch of matches that are very similar, if not virtually identical in some respects, even no matter how strong the quality is, and then turn around and say, that show is better than a show that was like masterfully booked from top to bottom where every match had meaning, every match served a troll, every match. Like, I just don't, that's not the kind of fan I am. You know, it, it, I recognize that there are other people who might feel completely different. They may say, well, you know, the match, the, the, the show with the best number of great matches is a better show. But to me as a fan, that's not necessarily the case. And by the way, it's not like the SCI was short on very good to great matches. Yeah, that's the thing here too. Like even, yeah, even if we do have like, you know, fantastic booking and, you know, stuff that, you know, set up later stages of the rounds and, you know, you know, another, you know, another version of the tournament itself. You know, I already mentioned, you know, Jimmy Ray versus Matt Riddle, the final, Leo Rush versus Anthony Henry, Henry versus Buck. You know, there's a lot of really great matches and something like ones I didn't even like mention. And like when I was just, you know, shooting off of those ones, like even while we're praising the booking of this particular tournament and the way they broke everything down and made everything matter and made things feel different. You're not short of great matches here either. I feel like you could, even if you are a casual fan of Southern Indies and don't particularly care about the stories being told, you're still going to see some matches you're going to think are at least good. I absolutely agree. In fact, you know, and again, it's weird because I'm not even the biggest star rating guy, but, and, and I haven't really thought down, got, sat down and hashed it out in, in perfect detail, and I wouldn't do it until after I saw the VOD anyway, but... Realistically, of the 15 matches that took place between the two shows, including a couple of, you know, non-tournament matches that we didn't talk about because they don't really fit into the narrative of this show, I would say all but two I would have at three stars or better. You know, like 13 out of 15 matches at three stars or better, you know, and like just sort of thinking about it going off the cuff and, and thinking about like where I would have certain stuff, I might have as many as seven matches at four stars. I'm not positive of that, but it's like a rough in that range. And to me, it's hard to sit like this year's tournament didn't just tell an interesting, fun, good story or, or a few interesting, fun, good stories. It also delivered the great matches. You had both, you know. So, and I think you see that in the fact that a lot of people can't decide what the hell. I mean, I've seen. A, a lot, lot of different, different matches picked as the top, top match of this turn. To me, it was clearly the final. Yeah, but I've, I've seen I've seen people say Leo versus Henry. I've seen people say Riddle versus Hollis. I've seen people say you know at least from night one, Ray Fury versus Joey Lynch. You know, I've seen 
probably five or six matches. On night one, if you just isolated that, I think I've seen five or six different matches that people said with their match of the night. You know, and that to me speaks well to the tournament that it's reasonable people can argue for five or six different matches on one of the nights is the top match of the night. Yeah, and I think it's like a weird, not weird dichotomy, but I think they managed to make, you know, the perfect balance because, you know, even as someone that will, you know, watch PWG shows, I can't say that there's any, you know, interesting, you know, stories or booking and that they're telling, you know, when I'm watching BOLA, I just feel like I'm watching a bunch of good matches. Or say, when I'm watching, you know, the final few nights of the G1, where the plans for the booking, you know, really start to shine through, and I'm still getting great matches, or anything else. It feel like they did, like, strike, like, a perfect balance between, okay, we're gonna make sure that we get our stories over, and get, you know, our setups for the stories that we want to tell, and make sure that we make very clear, you know, vocal points, but it's not like we're, like, taking nights off in the ring, or, like, we're inherently making our matches worse or less memorable because we want to tell stories. Yes, yeah, so I, totally I totally agree with that. that. Like, like, the matches, the matches they, did they did not sacrifice quality for storytelling, and they did not sacrifice storytelling for quality. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, they delivered on both fronts. And I will say, by the way, one, one thing I will give credit to is, you know, this year's Best of the Super Juniors, I thought, was an example of a... Round robin, robin tournament that was done pretty, pretty well. Yeah. You know, you know like, like, I mean, I, mean, I thought I it was really, really good. good. There, there are things about the booking I wasn't in love with, with but in terms of presenting interesting matchups, uh, guys delivering and working up to or above their standard, um, sort of a, you know, compelling and interesting way to deliver with the final and get to the final. I thought that was an example of a, of a, uh, a tournament that maybe a lot of people weren't expecting to be that great. Sort of delivering within that round robin system. I still think there's obvious problems with the round robin system that make it almost innately inferior, regardless of the amount of talent in it, at least for what I look for in a tournament. But, you know, it, it, and here's another thing too, like there's a psychological element I think that, that I, that I think is important. When I think about tournaments, I don't. I just simply don't think about what really amounts to a tour. Yeah. I think about a single event. Now that single event might last two, three, or maybe even four days. I suppose be possible. But once you get past about four or five days, to me, you're not talking about a tournament anymore. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's not really an event. It's. It, that's why it always sort of rubbed me wrong when people are talking about the G1. This G1 being the best wrestling tournament ever. Yes, it's technically a tournament. Um, sure, I completely get that, but to me, it's it's really a tour. It, like, I know this is like a semantic argument, and some people might think it's bullshit or whatever, but in my mind, a tournament is an event. It's something that, you know, you, you in a single place in time, people can experience together, not something that... You know, that drags on, dra- drags, on for, drags on for 17 nights. And, you know, I think the G1, the first night of G1 was like maybe like July 22nd and then, and then not ending till, um, August 14th. You know, like, even if I'm a fan of the G1, 
even if I'm a fan of New Japan, like, come on, like, that's, that doesn't feel like a tournament, and that's why I totally get where you're coming from with that, because it's like, that's 17 shows, not, no, 19 shows, actually. That's 19 shows, and, you know, you could really, you know, understand somebody not wanting to sit through that if you're going to market that as a tournament. Not only that, but it's ha- but half the shows aren't even tournament matches. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, and again, this is not me getting a dig in at New Japan. Obviously, the G1's been exceptionally successful for them, and to a large degree, I think even more important for them from a, in terms of building their brand internationally than even Wrestle Kingdom has been. Because I really feel like it's the G1 that has really established the international fan base for them. Oh, I agree. Um, I agree completely on that one. So I, 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 in no way am I criticizing them from a business perspective or from the perspective of, of you know, the significance and importance of the, of it. I mean, it's obviously much more significant than SCI or Best of the Best or TPI or any of these things. But as a tournament, I just struggle with the idea. I, I don't know. It's very difficult for me to look at – like, how would you even compare – the G1, our best of the Super Juniors, or the Super J, you know what I mean? Like, how would you compare these tour-type events, or the Carnival, or whatever, to a TPI, or a BOLA? You know? Like, I, I, it's very hard to and make mo- the most, comparison. And most people would just go by, just go based off of good matches, but then it's like, inherently, when you have set, when you have 19 shows to work with, you know... Depending, like, either way, depending on what your tastes are, you know, it's likely that the show with 19, it's, it's likely that the tournament with 19 shows is gonna have, you know, more great matches, you know, just based on, you know, quantity than, uh, you know, the three day or two day tournament. Oh, of course. Absolutely. You know, uh, but it doesn't mean it's booked better, it doesn't mean it builds better, it doesn't mean it's logical progression better, it doesn't mean it tells stories better, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it might. It might. It also doesn't mean that it doesn't do those things. But, um, it's a, it, it, I think it's very difficult to even compare. I almost feel like when we talk about tournaments and what's the best ever or what our favorite is or whatever, it, it might even be useful to separate between round robin and single elimination just generally uh, as a rule because they're so different in terms of how they're laid out, how they're booked, the advantages and disadvantages of both, like you're really talking about two separate things. You know, like, like, you're not really talking about the same thing. It's like comparing like a three hour raw today to an hour long raw from 1994. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. They're, they're so different. Yes, I realize they're called the same thing, but you, the, the universe in which those two things operate is so different that it's really hard to compare them directly. Yeah, um, I think there's actually a good place to end it. Um, I feel like we actually covered a lot of ground, even though we probably didn't get into like all time great tournament stuff. But you know, that would probably take like a another hour to do. So I'll let at you, least, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you go on that one. Um, I mean, I would assume most people follow you on Twitter if they're listening to this show. But um, any plugs that you need to get out the way. Well, you can follow me on Twitter if you don't already at Dylan Waco. That's D Y L A N, the correct spelling of Dylan Waco, W A C O. Um, I have not been podcast. This is my first podcast I've been on in quite a while, Quinn. Uh, so you should, you should feel special. It's been it's 
it's been a minute, you know. I mean, I, I sat. I guess you could say that I, you know, asked questions and briefly sat in at a, at a fan, uh, some of the stuff going on at the, for the, you know, what was effectively a fan convention over SCI weekend. But as far as an actual guest appearance, this is my first, and God, I couldn't even tell you. It's been quite a while. Um, I'm very happy to do it. Um, you can find me semi-regularly writing reviews to put to be generous over at Wrestling with Words. I've done a few of them. Uh, most recently, I did a review of the Why We Wrestle uh, show, their first VOD, the Summer of Hate show, which is available uh, from Real House uh, for I believe nine ninety nine. It's a good good show, you know, not a blow away great show, but for a first effort from another Southern independent promotion, I think it's worth. Um, Giving it a look, you'll see some of the names and people from the SCI, including Gunnar Miller, and I think uh, Joey Lynch is on the show. And most notably, Anthony Henry, who has a really good main event with Strict Nine. Actually, a, a, another sort of feather in his cap, if you're talking about a guy who has had a, a really good year. Um, people should check that out. Uh, go over and check that out. Uh, I'm sure they've got the link also posted on their Twitter if you want to check them out while you wrestle. Um, and uh, beyond that, you know, uh, as we record this, I'm about ooh, three hours away from leaving for the airport uh, to fly up to the Great White North uh, to uh, what I call the Great White North, which is New York, <laughs> <laughs> because anything above Mason-Dixon is the Great White North to me, and uh, I'm going to Brooklyn. I'll be up there for the weekend. I'm doing Tier 1. I'm doing uh, Evolve. I'm doing NXT. I'm doing SummerSlam, and I'm doing Raw. So it's uh, it's the Papa Hales and Dylan Hales birthday weekend. His birthday is on the twentieth, um, uh, which you know is the day of evolving NXT, and my birthday is on the twenty third, which is actually the day I fly back. But we're kind of celebrating everything at once, and I may write something about that when they get back. We'll see if I do. It'll be also probably on WrestlingWithWords.com, and there's some other things I'd like to review uh, for the site soon. So just keep an eye on my Twitter. Uh, and keep an eye on wrestling with words. And again, I can't thank you enough for being on because again, we're all just like weirdos in this, you know, that we all watch too much wrestling. That's but, true. Yeah, but, but you know, like when I first started getting like into listening to stuff and, you know, podcast feeds and all that, you were one of the first voices that I recognized. Like, so this was one of the, you know, I guess like, dream scenarios for me to have you on a show. So I really do appreciate the fact that you took the time to do this for someone that's, you know, much below your level. Well, I would not at all say you're below my level. I think, I think you are, um, one of the good guys who's doing a bunch of good stuff, both when it comes to audio content and just generally like your presence as a fan who watches everything, you know, it's very refreshing to, not be the only guy who watches everything. Not that I was the only guy, but there wasn't. We're not a whole lot of us who are watching Japanese wrestling, lucha, mainstream American wrestling, and indie wrestling five, six years ago. I mean, it was there were some, but it was it was not a huge, huge group of people that were watching all this stuff. And I feel like uh, you're one of the guys who's who's doing it and doing it well and making insightful comments. So I'm happy to do the show. I'd love to do one again in the future. And thanks for having me on to talk about. Uh, what I feel was my baby, even though I'm not a booker or promoter, <laughs> the SCI, I always will uh, enjoy talking about that in tournaments as a whole. So thanks for having me on. All right. And I guess I'll wrap, um, wrap us up. Um, thank you all for listening and hope you're here next time.